Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here to talk about stuff this week on the show. We are diving back into the world of Star Wars, continuing yep. in our narratively chronological step back through the series. I think that was, which is because we originally it was just going to be the prequels and then we watched the prequels and we're like, well, we might as well do the other ones too. They're really good. They're all good. You yeah. Know? So yeah, we, we, if you have not been listening this year, we have done episodes one, two, and three as kind of a, a critical reevaluation of the prequels and that was a fun project. We got great feedback from you guys on it and they're just super interesting movies to talk about. Yeah. This week the project changes a little bit because we're moving on from episode 3 to episode 4, yeah. the original Star Wars. And we're not quite so arrogant to assume that we can perform a critical reevaluation of probably the most discussed movie ever. <laughs> no, we are not going to be doing probably a reevaluation except maybe a personal one of just like, sure, yeah. like put it under the same microscope we did the other movies. Do you see anything new? I, I did, I thought. Yeah, I did too. Yeah, I, I'm not gonna like say I think differently about the movie like critically. It's I thought it was a great movie and I still do. No, now I think it's a pile of shit. All yeah. of it, all of it's terrible. No, it's good. So from it's here terrible. on out, I think. Well, not from here on out because I'm actually really interested to talk about Return of the Jedi when we get there. Right. Um, yeah. Because I think I would argue that that movie is just as problematic as the prequels. If you think the prequels are problematic. Oh yeah. And we'll get there. But we're going to talk about it today with episode four. I also wanted to do at least one of the original films before Solo, a Star Wars movie, come a Star Wars story. <laughs> they it might as well just, yeah, it's, it's a Star Wars movie, you yeah. know, it's making one of these a year. No, but the new Solo movie comes out uh, just to get a little taste of, of OG Harrison Ford as, as Han Solo. And he is very good in that movie. Yeah. 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 So I just, I'll, spoiler from for here, I feel bad for Alden Ehrenreich. Yeah. I, he could be the best actor in the world, and he has the toughest fucking job. Yeah, it's it's something of where I would honestly... Obviously, we haven't seen Solo yet, but I would assume people should not re-watch the original trilogy before <laughs> seeing that movie, because that's just not fair. No, it's not fair, and it's not a reflection on the actor at all. It's no. like, it would be unfair to anyone. But yeah, so Star Wars talk is coming up. Um, if Do I need to make the spoiler warning? We're no. going to spoil A New Hope. Yeah. You've all seen, if you haven't seen it... You I should. I also but, don't know what you can spoil. Obi Wan Kenobi dies. That's yeah. like the biggest spoiler in the movie. Like the good guys win. All right. Spoil. Yep. All right. Uh, Chewie doesn't get a fucking medal. Yeah. Hey, bullshit. R two D two almost dies, but then survives, which is a part of the movie I always forget happens yeah. at the end. We're gonna do two pieces of video game news today as well. We're gonna do a little bit of stuff. Let's start with the stuff, Sean. All right. Uh, there has been like a, a minor recurring segment on this show where you have traveled places and then given us stories. Yes. I think like, it's maybe three times? It's been two or three. You know, the, yeah. people have forgotten the great saga of the library on the cruise that I was in and how shit yes. it was. Yeah. yeah, or visiting the Nintendo Museum in in New York. Or yes. store. Yeah. yeah it's not, it, it's the, the part that interested me was the part that was most museum-like. Yes. Yeah. So, As someone who did not own a 3DS or a Wii U and before the Switch was out, there wasn't anything I could have bought in that store but those consoles. Yes, exactly. Um, but I have a travel story. All right, yeah. So it's Jonathan's turn to do a spin-off of this segment. What, what incredible exotic location did you travel to, Jonathan, that you can spit a yarn about on this podcast? Iowa City, Iowa. Oh, boy. I like Iowa City. It's cool. So, if, recap, if you guys don't know, I'm going to be moving soon because I was accepted to the PhD program in film studies at the University of Iowa, Department of Cinematic Arts, and uh, moving there in August, probably. Uh, no, the podcast isn't ending. 
We've talked about that before. Yeah, we covered this. Yeah, <laughs> but yes, uh, just in case anyone was shocked by that news, and I obviously wanted to go out there and visit this town I'm going to be living in before just moving there because that would be a bit of a shock in a lot of ways. Right. So uh, my brother Thomas and I went out and spent four days. So one day driving, two days there, another day driving back. So it was a lot of being in the car. I put sixteen hundred miles on my car. Okay, so that was nice. It was a lot. I uh, had just got an oil change and I almost needed a new one. So there it's great. Go. But yes, um, you know, I, I'm from Iowa originally, if people don't know. I was born in Des Moines, Iowa, and lived there until I was three, so I don't remember that part of it, but obviously uh, we've gone back there a lot ever since because my dad had nine brothers and sisters, most of whom live in Iowa and have procreated and have families across that state and Which others. explains why your dad didn't want to stay in Iowa for that long. <laughs> Oh, he always wanted to go back, but yes. Uh, but you maybe... don't want to. You want to go back, but you don't want to live there. I guess so. Nine siblings. But yeah, nine siblings. My mom has at least one sibling out there, and then some of his family are out there. So I have deep roots in Iowa, and I've always loved the state. Beautiful state. Um, I think people lump Iowa in with a lot of the boring parts of the Midwest, like Nebraska, which is a. It's not the worst part of the drive to Iowa. The worst part is eastern Colorado, which is a no-man's land. Yeah. It looks like the part of a post-apocalyptic movie where, like, Viggo Mortensen and his son are, like, going through sadly looking for cans. Yeah. That's what eastern it's, Colorado looks like. It's not quite Wyoming, but it's almost yeah. Wyoming. Wyoming's the... If you live in Wyoming... Jonathan, don't worry. How do you have internet? Jonathan, nobody lives in Wyoming. Wyoming. I know. It's got the population density of, like, the earth. Yeah. It's like, you know, we're two-thirds water. It's like basically Wyoming. There's, like, one person on one side of Wyoming, one person on the other, and it's like, that's it. I guarantee you, Sean, we have more active listeners in the island nation of Japan than we do Wyoming. Oh, yes. Yeah. It's easily. Just... There are more people living in one apartment building in Japan than there are in the entire state of fucking Wyoming. (laughs) That's probably true. Anyway, but Iowa is interesting because... So when Nebraska ends and you enter Iowa, there is this big river that separates the two states. And so you're in Omaha, Nebraska. This is a nice, nice town, nice metropolis. And you cross over that river and it's immediate, like... It's like Dorothy going into Oz. It's like everything just bursts into color because Iowa is this really colorful state. It's so green and you've got these beautiful rolling hills. And a lot of it is farmland, but it's very colorful farmland. You know, um, if you want to know the effect of this, the movie I always recommend is David Lynch's The Straight Story, which is the movie David Lynch fans don't know he made. Right, yeah. And it's, I think, the best movie about like traveling the American Midwest I have ever seen. And it just captures the... Because it's set in Iowa. And it captures the feeling of, like, driving in Iowa so well. And David Lynch approaches things, these things with such earnestness. You know, he doesn't... I don't think he looks down on his subjects. Yeah. Even he would enjoy Wyoming. Yes, even he... I think David Lynch would find something to enjoy in Wyoming. Exactly, yeah. Um, but, yeah, so I always have loved driving through Iowa. It's why I feel very comfortable moving there, even though I've lived in Colorado most of my life. Um, but we got, you know... I, I, I don't know Iowa City that well. I, I, Des Moines, where, you know, obviously I was born, I know that city very well. Some of the other places in Iowa. But I've only been to Iowa City once. And it was cool to go back there. And it is a really cool town. I'm very excited to live there. It's kind of... It's basically what you would expect if I said the Iowa version of Boulder. Okay, yeah. You know? Which Boulder is a college town in Colorado. Right. Yeah. Which is where the University of Colorado is. We lived there for several years. We went to the University of Colorado. And, you know, it's you know the same thing where the campus takes up a lot of the city. Yeah. There's students and people everywhere. There's a really, like, I think, vibrant cultural scene and just great dining and restaurants and pretty deep roots and traditions. Uh, Iowa City is, I think, a, 
older city and everything, so it has some more maybe long-standing buildings and institutions and stuff. It was the original capital of Iowa, so they've got an old capital building and everything. So that's why they called it Iowa City. Yes. It's just easy to remember. Now it's just confusing. Now it's just confusing, Because you'd yes. think that Iowa City would be the capital of Iowa, but it's not. You would. It got moved to Des Moines. Yeah. The fat cats in Des Moines. Yeah. But Bastards. no... We, uh, but we spent a couple days there, and I met some of the people I'm going to be learning from and working with at the university, which was cool. And the campus is beautiful. Love that. Very excited about that. Um, but Iowa City is just a cool place. They they don't have many, like, quote-unquote, real movie theaters, as oh. we would think of them, which is going to be a slight downside for me. Right, now, I'll yeah. say, the town of Cedar Rapids is 20 miles away, and I assume it has more. But I'll look into that. Uh, they have, like, they have, if you want to see, like, Avengers, you have to go to, like, a mall theater in Iowa City. Right. So I might have to just miss movies for a couple of years. I'm kidding. But they do have a really nice little indie theater that I went to called The Film Scene, which was great. It's kind of like their version of the Denver Film Center here in Denver. Mm-hmm. And, Sean, this was so fortuitous. This was so wild. The night we got there, or the day we got there to Iowa City, what movie was playing at the, uh, the film scene in Iowa City? Kiki's Delivery Service. Okay, there you go. One of the movies in the thesis I submitted to be accepted for this program. Right, yeah. And so I said to Thomas, well, we've got to go see that, you know. And it was um, a charming little theater. They have, like, more normal auditoriums with, like, normal theater seating. But this one, they call it the screening room. And it's, like, this little, like, art gallery installation where they've put out, like, just chairs to sit on. But, like, the screen is big, and, like, this projection was beautiful. Movie looked amazing, sounded amazing. And it was just this fun little community atmosphere. There were a lot of kids there enjoying the movie, which I always like with a Miyazaki to see kids watch yeah. it and enjoy it and be like, see, Hollywood, you, they like subtlety. Yes, I promise. Yes. Kids can appreciate it. It doesn't have to be fart jokes and pop culture references. Yes, exactly. Pop culture references that no kid could possibly humanly yeah. understand. Yes. Um, but that was fun. And just, again, it was like... Wow, that's kind of crazy that they had that the the day I got out there. Um, but that was fun. We went to a bunch of cool restaurants. Um, you know, like I said, met with people. I'm trying to remember if there was anything else. We we went to on a whim. We were kind of bored the afternoon of the second day because we'd run out of like all the things we had to yeah, do. The, the amazing attractions of Iowa City. City. But so I was looking up online, and Iowa City has a Museum of Natural History, which is part of the university. And kind of as a joke, I started looking at it and like reading to Thomas like what it said. And I, you know what? I'm going to pause the podcast for a second. I have to read you this shot. Okay. okay, so I found it. Okay. A brief break, brief break. So this is the website for the, universe, the Iowa City's uh, Natural History Museum. And I was reading through this. And I got to the page about the William and Eleanor Hadjboek Hall of Birds. Okay. Which is one of the exhibits there. Always like a good hall of birds. And by the time I finished reading these two paragraphs out loud, Thomas, who thought it was the dumbest idea, said, We have to go see that. Okay. Taking flight, the world of birds features exhibits on all aspects of bird life, ecology, and evolution, from courtship to eggs, nesting and parenting, to feeding and flight. The museum's bird collection includes nearly all species recorded as residents or seasonal visitors of Iowa, with over 1,000 birds on display. There is an interactive computer station on bird sounds, a life-sized model of a wandering albatross with a real fiber-optically illuminated skeleton inside, and a video presentation on bird flight. A fiber optically illuminated skeleton. skeleton of an albatross. That and that was we went over there. We went to the museum. It's free, which is cool. And we went in, and we were just the joke we kept making is, "Where's the wandering albatross? We gotta go see the wandering albatross." And here's the thing, Sean: the wandering albatross was not one of the five coolest things we saw in that museum. Huh? They've got. I mean, in all seriousness, 
like, public universities are one of the things America should be proudest about that we have achieved as a culture that we mm-hmm. never talk about and actively defund every day. Yeah. Um, because you've got a university like this that has deep roots, has been around for like a hundred years, has had so many people come through it and do research that they've got collections like this where they've basically got, you know, stuffed animals from like, some of these are from like the 1930s that people collected on just animals that um, live in the state of Iowa today, have historically lived there, are extinct now. Um, recreations of animals from prehistoric ages. They've got a giant, like, 10-foot sloth that's this really cool thing nice. in there. Um, the wandering albatross is cool, but, like, the giant fucking emu is even cooler. And there's just, there's birds, there's all these birds you can explore. There's a whole thing about, like, the history of Iowa's geology. And there was a whole room about, like, mammals in Iowa. It was... It was cooler than it had any right to be. It was really neat. And the coolest thing is it's just in one of the university buildings. And there were people taking a final in a different room while we were there. Oh, that's cool. You know? So it's like, you could just go do that. And I like that. You know? They didn't have like a fancy IMAX theater showing, you know, history of space 3D or whatever. But that's okay. Yeah. And then after you, you know, take your final and like fail it and you just walk straight out of that room and just get consoled by the, the wandering albatross with the fiber optically illuminated skeleton. That was honestly like whoever wrote that, they're good at writing copy. They yeah. really like, they're like, oh, what can we sell? That fucking wandering albatross, man. That yeah. wandering albatross. But Sean, I also got you something in Iowa. Okay. This is unexpected. Yeah. Um, so we were walking down a block one day uh, yeah. in, in like the. The pedestrian mall of Iowa City, and there was a comic book store. Oh, and we went in there actually looking for Yu-Gi-Oh cards because my brother oh. and I. Now that I've been watching, I'm in the 80 episodes of, of Yu-Gi-Oh, and uh, I've gotten really into it. And when we were moving, I found our old Yu-Gi-Oh cards. Yeah, so we've been nice. playing that a little bit, you know. But had to like, you know, what have the, for one that game has changed way too much. I don't understand it. Oh God, yeah, like because. What we were into Yu-Gi-Oh in like the early two thousands. Yeah, and now so there are like five or six spin-offs deep now. Well, yeah, because with each spin-off they've added a new type of card. Yeah, and it's like there used to be three. There yes. were monsters, traps, effects. Yeah, and then it's like like you had some like fusion cards, and that was right. like the most exotic it got. Yeah, no, it's wild. But anyway, but Sean, this is actually a really cool comic book shop, and they had back issues of like any comic you wanted dating back like that comic's inception. Like they probably don't have like maybe the absolute most famous issues of every comic because right, what's yeah. what one store would but they had a lot and i know you love spider-man okay and so i exciting. looked i had to try to strike a balance between an old comic that i could afford as a half gag gift right you know? yeah you're not going to spend a hundred fucking bucks no yeah but also one that had a funny enough cover that i thought you would enjoy it and i could share it on the podcast okay i think i hit the mother load of that particular like intersection. Okay. So I'm going to give you the comic and you can describe what is on the cover and what it says because it's, I think it's amazing. Okay. Okay. This is the amazing Spider-Man issue 160 from September. It was 30 cents. Yes. Originally. I assume it was more expensive. It costs more than that. Yeah. Yes. It's impossible. Says Spider-Man. All my superpowers have failed me. And there's a mysterious figure off to the left that says exactly as I planned fool. In moments you will be dead. And your own Spider-Mobile will be your murderer. And Spidey is hanging from a building with his car 
coming to run him over. Yes, and for those who do not know, the Spider-Mobile was a short-lived part of the Spider-Man mythos where Spider-Man's best friend, the Human Torch, <laughs> helped him make a fucking car called the Spider-Mobile. That is important for the, the cover of this issue. One of the abilities of the Spider-Mobile was that it could drive on walls, and so it's driving up the side of a building uh, aiming straight for Spider-Man because I presume the Tinkerer has taken control of it. I probably have read this issue at some point, but this is pretty fucking cool. Thank you, Jocelyn. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, an, it's an original. Like, it's in the nice, yeah. you know, plasticky packaging. And it was, I had so much fun looking through all those covers. The one I wanted to get, and it just cost too much, was it was a, a crossover with Captain America was there. Okay. And Spidey is running, and Captain has his, sh- Captain has his shield out, and Spider-Man says, why does Captain America want to murder me? And I just, like... <laughs> Like, that's a good one. Yeah. The covers to old comic books are about the best things. Yes. It, they, because it's always, it was that, that's how they sold them, right? Uh-huh. It's just like, you had this on fucking magazine racks and like candy shops. This is like, what is the most ridiculous horse shit we could put on the cover? That's like, sometimes almost has nothing to do with the actual plot. I, I tried to do a deep cut and try to find an issue of something that had Paste Pot Pete in it based on a very old podcast discussion. Yeah. I could not. No, you wouldn't have found that. Yeah, no, that's, I, that's, that's old. And I don't know if Paste Pot Pete ever, like, quite rated for the cover of yeah. any issue. Yes. Yeah. Um, but that one just struck my eye. And there you go. You have some other old Spider-Man comics. Yes, yes, I do. I've got a, sh- a small collection. So anyway, there's random issue 156 or yes, whatever. No, 160. 160. Yeah, okay. And you can see on the back that originally the, the whoever sold this to the comic book shop had it labeled as 159. And then someone had to scratch that out and say, no, this is 160, 160. you fucking idiot. Yeah. It says it right here. They've got a lot of cool little stores like that in Iowa City. We also found a cool like used game store and some other ones. Um, just a lot of hobbyist stuff. So it was fun. Um, but yeah, that was my trip to Iowa City. I think I'm going to like it. Uh, you know, I found a place to live uh, that I'm looking forward to, and it's in a quiet part of town, so we can record this podcast. Nice. You yeah. will not have the road sounds you had when we recorded this in Boulder. Yeah. I am not on an intersection. That's good. Although I thought that, that it lent an urban feel. I always liked podcast. that. Yeah. yeah. I actually, when I moved away from uh, Boulder, I had trouble sleeping for a little while without yeah. the road sounds. I had that as well. Yeah. You yeah. get used to it of just like yeah. every once in a while, just a car needs to go screaming past this fucking intersection. I've done the very traditional grad student thing where I have moved about a mile further out of town than I would have when I was an undergrad. Uh-huh. <laughs> so yeah. you can be away from everything. Yeah. You just get old and crusty. Yeah, but thinking about living on the road, that is the one thing if like people are listening to this podcast are thinking about moving into some sort of place that is by a road. Try to avoid being next to an intersection is the advice I would give. The road is fine. The intersection is like the once a month a car crash happens yeah, right how there. Often it's like the we... most stressful fucking thing. Did we ever ha- record a car crash live on the podcast? I don't think so because they usually yeah. happen in the afternoon. Okay. Yeah. But it happens so frequently. It just, it would, like by probability, it would not have surprised me if we captured one live on the air. Yeah. it's That's like, avoid that because people are fucking idiots and can't handle intersections. I'm apparently. mildly amazed no one ever like ran through our living room yeah it was it, it was a like sort of like with that like dark fantasy you have every now again it's just like oh what if i just like like i'm staring over the skyscraper rail what if i just jumped it's like me sitting in the living room being like what if a car just came through here like in fucking spider-man 2 yes but without spider-man to save yeah but without spider-man without mj to save and without dr octopus like coming and being all cool yeah yeah all right we got a little off topic but that's okay all right sean you got any stuff um, just a little bit of stuff. I, I finished in 
platinumed God of War and everything nice. since last week. That game is fucking awesome. Uh, the, I really, really enjoyed the final boss fight of that game. That you sort of the, they have like this big kind of post game stuff, and there's a big last boss to fight. And it's, I enjoyed it's that a lot. hard. It's a hard fight, but it's it's built up too well through the yeah, other yeah. like optional boss fights you do. This is kind of a combination of a lot of those different move sets and everything in this one character. I thought it was it was a hard fight, but very fair, and, yeah. and I felt well prepared for it. And it took me a couple of like goes at it, and like kind of looking at my characters' like sort of move sets and everything. I had and like, ah, oh, let's try this stuff. Let's try this, and like kind of used a couple of different strategies before I nailed it. I'll confess, I did have to move it down to easy to beat that last fight. I beat it on hard. Well, good for you. Yeah, uh, it actually is one thing I like about that game is that none of the trophies are tied to difficulty. Yeah, so it really encourages you to like engage with. All of the game, the difficulty is not going to be a barrier. I, I think that's a good thing for gaming as a whole. We've talked about yeah. this a lot. Difficulty levels are good, and you don't want to discourage people from using them if they have to. Yes, yeah, so I, I like having a variety of options so that if someone wants to be able to just sort of like say, like, ah, I don't want to like hammer against this boss fight for like three fucking days. Right. Let's just knock it down to easy, or it's just like, I want to fucking ruin myself on this boss fight. Let's make it as difficult as possible. Video games should, generally speaking, have both of the options for players. So are you going to go back and play it on God of War difficulty? At some point, almost certainly. Not not immediately. I'm not that crazy. Because yeah. also, like, this is the kind of game where I know, like, in a month or two, there's going to be a bunch of patches that will, like, add in little bits and, and doodads. And those they things. already added photo mode. Yeah. Yeah. That, the, I think they added photo mode the day that I finished that boss fight. So I took, like, yeah. one screenshot. I was like, okay, good. I, I can say I used the photo mode. Um, the other thing I did... So, like related to God of War is I finished reading um, Norse Mythology by Neil Gaiman and I can give that book a full recommendation I think it's fucking awesome if you have any interest in Norse Mythology at all and want to just like get a sense of the actual like stories of Norse Mythology but don't want to take like the big step of saying like I'm gonna like order fucking like the Penguin Classics version of the Poetic Edda or something I just want like a nice readable consumable version of these stories uh, I think Neil Gaiman's uh, Norse Mythology is a great, great book. He does a lot of smart things in terms of how he structures the stories, and the stories are presented in basically a kind of chronological order in that the book begins with the sort of creation myth of Norse Mythology, and it ends with Ragnarok, and there's little hints in the middle of like, oh, the, like this story kind of builds up a little bit, puts one piece that kind of leads up to Ragnarok and that kind of stuff. And that's a it's a smart sort of sense that Neil Gaiman has of how and where to structure the stories. He also has a really commanding voice for the characters and the different gods, particularly Thor and Loki, who are the two like most significant like recurring figures in the book because they're the most recurring figures in Norse mythology that we have. And he has that just strong sense of voice for Loki being this just asshole trickster that's just like he's smart, but he's also he's smart and an idiot because he's smart because he can trick people. He's an idiot because all he does is trick people. And he kind of has no real reason to do it. He's just an asshole, but he's a fucking moron. And then Thor is a big doof. And like if you think that like you if you really like uh, Chris Hemsworth portrayal of Thor but you're like ah oh, that probably has no relation to the mythology and it actually kind of does cuz that is like he's this doofus he's this big doofus with a big hammer that likes to fucking hit trolls with his big hammer but kind of doesn't think much about it like that there's a certain authenticity to that um and Neil Gaiman has a great sense of the dialogue for those characters so yeah, I highly, highly recommend picking up Neil Gaiman's North Mythology if you're interested. The other thing I have done is I have read the introduction to the J.R.R. Tolkien, like Christopher Tolkien's compiled J.R.R. Tolkien's The Legend of Sigurd and Gudrun 
Um, and by reading the introduction, I mean I read the first 50 pages, because right. that is the introduction of the book. Which is, I so I haven't read any of the actual poems yet that J.R. Tolkien wrote, but the introduction to it is, the, the sort of the bulk of the introduction is a lecture that J.R. Tolkien performed um, when he was working as a professor that, that was put together by Christopher Tolkien through his notes. And so you just basically get this like transliterated version of one of the lectures that he actually performed uh, about the origins of the poetic Edda and where we where you get the sort of the sources for the story that he then wrote in poetic form. And that's really interesting. That's and, awesome. Yeah, it's, it's really good. Uh, that's really fun. Also... You get some like nice in, like instructional material on the poetic verse that he uses because it's based on the poetic verse that they actually used in Old Norse, which is not like you know we like typically understand like English poetry as like the early modern English kind of Shakespeare iambic pentameter all that kind of stuff, and that's not how this shit works at all. And so that was really interesting, being like, oh fuck, I have to completely. It's like about lifts and dips. And like four one four one one four one, so it's like okay, this is all different. Like it's it's like like half half lines of four syllables of rising or falling intonation with uh, alliteration in the first the the two rises in the or the two lifts in the first half line have to both alliterate, and then the second lift in the second half line alliterates, but not the first lift in the second half line, because the second half lift in the second half line is the key alliteration, and that is what ties it all together. It's very complicated. I had to read it like five fucking times to get it, but I'm very excited tonight to actually read the book and not just the introduction. Nice. Yeah. Y'all clicked on a podcast about Star Wars, got a lecture on ancient Norse poetry. Yes. That's what that's what this podcast is all about. Yes, that's what it's going to be about once I finish reading this book. Awesome. I can't I, can't, I wait. can't wait to finish reading the poems and then have to go back and reread the intro and be like, "Oh, I didn't actually understand anything about this introduction, so I have to read it again now." Yes. That's the one thing about most academic introductions I read, I feel like should go at the end. Yeah. But but so, also you kind of also have to read it yes. cuz it's like I wouldn't understand half of the shit in the book of like how to pronounce any of these names or how to understand the poetic meter or anything if I didn't read this introduction. And so you have to kind of like read the book twice before you understand yep. any of it. <laughs> that's a that's that's a real fucking book, goddammit. There you go. There you go. Uh, I'm still playing Donkey Kong Country Tropical Freeze. Okay. It's very good. Because of the Nintendo Switch, I did not have to completely put it down on my trip. I just brought it with me. Uh, kept playing it. Uh, I'm in World 5. I'm almost done with it. Uh, world 6 is the last world. And that I'm playing it very thoroughly. Like, I'm getting everything. And good fucking God, that game is amazing. You should play it. World 4 is the water world, where you mostly swim. And that would usually be the point where most people would say this platformer now sucks. Yeah. Because that is the bane of most side-scrolling platformers. Yeah. Certainly of Sonic, oftentimes of Mario, sometimes even of Donkey Kong in his games. And it's maybe my favorite part of that entire game. Hmm. Or what Retro has done with the, the series in their two entries. It's uh, transcendently good in how it controls and how it changes up the structure of levels and what it does for the atmosphere that game is just so fucking amazing, and I'm mad I didn't get I didn't make myself play it back in 2014 so it could be on my top 10 list last year because it would be a fraud to put it on my top 10 list this year. But I kind of yeah. want to. I don't know if the game outsells like its original numbers, like three to one on a new platform. Can you just call it a new no, game? No, all right, I know, no, but no, it's still that's, that's breaking the rules. You can right. come up with some way to recognize it. It will be my 2018 game. game of 2014. Exactly, but you did, it does not get to be in the top ten list. Yes, that's it's how okay. this podcast works. I understand. All right, um, let's talk. Speaking of Nintendo, let's do a little Nintendo news. Okay, because Nintendo had a news drop this week 
Oh, have, right. Yeah. That people have thoughts about. <clears throat> yeah. So anyway, Nintendo has been preparing for the launch of their online service. For Bas- what seems like 500 years now. Yes. They're, they Basically, they're equivalent to PlayStation Plus or Xbox Live Gold, where you will now have to pay to play games online, but there will be other complimentary services with it. Uh, they detailed this week in an FAQ on their website that went up at 3 in the morning because... It went up on their Japanese website first. Right. And there was no, like, video about it. or It was a very weird announcement, frankly. Um, but it went up, and they have detailed what it will be. I guess first would be cost. It's $20 a year. You can get it monthly for more, like $4 a month or something. But it's $20 a year. Uh, you, can na- you can buy a family plan as well that is $35 for up to eight people. Which sounds like a suspiciously enough good deal that I feel like we need to hear more details on yeah, that. Yeah, that's like the way that that would work with accounts and consoles. It's like that, I agree with you, that it makes me suspicious of how it would actually function. Not like they're doing anything evil with that. Just like, I don't think you're actually going to be able to get like eight friends on eight switches and yeah. like all just pull your money for... I don't think it's going to work like that. Still, that is obviously drastically cheaper either way than PS Plus or Xbox Live Gold. Yeah. It's a third as much because both of those are $60 now. Um... There will be, uh, so you can play your games online, obviously. There will be cloud saves, which everyone has been clamoring for. So you will finally be able to put your Nintendo saves in the cloud, which no Nintendo system has ever had still. It's true. Which is weird. You can obviously back up your saves on your 3DS and Wii U. You still cannot on your Switch, which I think people are rightly disturbed by. Yes. Because you should be able to just put a USB drive in and back that up. Yeah, it's kind of bullshit that there's no way to do it and then you're charging for like the one service that can do it. It's like there should be, even if it's not as convenient as cloud saves, there should be an option for people who don't want to do that. Oh, of course, yes. I I would not be surprised if Nintendo gets that eventually, but that probably should have been their day one. Yeah. Uh, and, And the big thing that everyone has been talking about is that this will also include... An online library of Nintendo Entertainment System games, NES games. There will be 20 games at launch. 10 have been announced so far. They're the 10 you would probably expect. Uh, Mario, Mario 3, Legend of Zelda, Ice Climbers, Donkey Kong, just the basic NES yeah, games. I think Balloon Fight's on Balloon there. Balloon Fight's yeah. in there. There will be 10 more. Um, and this will be kind of like a, a Netflix-style service where when you have the subscription, you can play any of these games. They will also have added online play, which means that any of these that are multiplayer, you can play multiplayer online. But you can also do things like pass the controller off remotely, so you could be playing it with a friend somewhere else, and if you hit a hard part in Mario or something, you could remotely pass it off to them, which is kind of cool. Um, so yeah, and, and the news with that is that Nintendo also confirmed to Kotaku something I think I called like a year ago on this podcast, which is that the virtual console is dead. Yep. They took it out back. They shot it. They buried it in a shallow grave. It is gone. They are not doing virtual console on Switch. The implication being that this online service is going to eventually replace that, that they're starting with NES games. They've already said in the past that they're also going to do Super NES at some point, but they'll expand to that. They will probably expand... Well, I don't even want to say probably. They would, in our hopes, expand to an N64 or something, but that would be how they do Virtual Console from here on out. And... It's interesting. It has created controversy, obviously, because they're changing a lot of things up. Yeah. I mostly actually find this pretty interesting. I think for $20 a year, I'm happy to pay that and get my cloud saves and play online. And I would be, I'm excited to play some of these games again and have them on the Switch. Do I wish they were launching this also with Super NES and N64 and GameCube and everything else I would possibly like to play at once? 
Yes, I would. Do I wish there was a way for all my mini virtual console purchases from yeah. 3DS and Wii U to carry over to the Nintendo Switch? Oh, yes, absolutely I do. But I also think... Uh, Kotaku also had an editorial on this that I thought was very true, which is that as much as the virtual console was nice to those of us who invested in it, it was a terrible way to collect retro games in that sure. form. And I think Nintendo could make this so much better than that ever was. And this sounds to me like a promising start. I think there's also the flip side of that, like it's coming a year and a half into the Switch, and it feels like maybe they should have had more ready for this, but I don't know. I, I'm i okay with it, and I have n no particularly strong feelings either way, the way some people on the internet do. But that's my two cents. Sean, go. Yeah, it's something where it's like... I think it's just like there there are ups and downs to it. So it's like obviously it being twenty bucks, that's like a really nice affordable price. It's yeah. way better than than what PS Plus and Xbox Live Gold are doing. Also, you still have like all the weird shit with like their app that's yeah. how they handle their online service, and so there's like no real like built in voice chat in the Switch or anything like that. There's the like it's the thing with like NES games where there's like maybe two or three NES games that I would actually want to go back to. That's like Super Nintendo is where it's at. I feel like if you're going to do 2D, like, old Nintendo games, it's, like, so many NES games I find so fucking hard to go back to. I do think... I do think Nintendo maybe has a fundamental misread of their audience on that. Yeah. Because I, I'm excited to go back and play some of these. I like a lot of these NES games. But I do fully understand a lot of people just have no interest in it. But if you said, at launch, we're doing 10 NES games, and it's the 10 essential ones, and 10 Super NES games, yes. and they were... You know, Mario World, Donkey Kong Country, like Link, to the past. Link to the Past, Yoshi's Island, just Super like... Super Metroid. Super Metroid, the big hits. I wouldn't expect third party right out the gate for obvious reasons. Yeah. But, like, just the big ones, I think you wouldn't have many negative words on this at all from a lot of people. Yeah, but it's, like, the idea of, like, who really wants to sit down and play a bunch of, like, Balloon Fight in Donkey Kong. Like, back in the day, those games were great. It's like, there's just not a lot... Or even, like, the original Legend of Zelda. It's also one of those, like, that game's fucking impossible to go back to. So, it's... There's something of them just being like, well, we're going to give you 20 NES games, but most people aren't going to play any of those NES games. They're going to want to play, like, Mario and Mario 3. They're going to check out Zelda and be like, I don't even understand how to play this video game, like, yeah. at all. Uh, and so that kind of stuff is... I think I understand like people's frustrations there, especially if you're someone who has been like this very loyal Nintendo like supporter for since the Wii and that has bought a shit ton of virtual console games and basically being told, nah, we're not doing that anymore. It's like I spent like hundreds of dollars buying all your old fucking video games. It's like I would even do the one dollar thing that you did with the fucking Wii U. Like it's just like please, I paid so much money for these games. Like, like, why can why wouldn't I be able to bring these forward? Especially if you know some of these are going to be on this online thing. Like, you will have to buy the subscription, obviously, to play them. Like, if you had bought Super Mario Brothers or Super Mario Brothers Three, and those are the only ones of these that you want to play, and you bought those on the virtual console, there's no way you like don't get those, right? You have to buy the service. So that stuff, I can really understand people being very frustrated with that side of the strategy, and 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 being given like this twenty set of NES games that like. What about all my virtual console games that I, I want to have? It's also something of, I'm curious to see, I'm very curious to see how that, like, the library for that is going to work. Like, are titles going to cycle out of that library? Are they just going to add on top of it? 
Like, I don't think it, they have not, like, very definitively said one way or the other about that. They they did. So when they originally, originally announced this service, right, yeah. like, before the Switch launched, they said it would be a rotating library of games. And it was going to be, and like, they, three. Yes. Yeah. And they quickly walked that back and said you would be keeping the games as they came out. And now they did not follow up on that statement here. I will imagine it's a growing library. Because also note that they didn't put their toes, like, out of the the normal Nintendo pool of, like, games we own, will own, will never stop owning. Yes, like, the, the Super Mario Brothers does not get ripped off of that service because of, like, a copyright no. issue, right? And that, I mean, this is part of it, though. Like, I, I'm, I'm totally sympathetic to the argument because I'm one of these people of, you spend a lot of money on virtual console, I'd like to carry those over to my fancy new Nintendo console, right? Especially because this is the one that is both a TV console and a yes. handheld console, so it's like the best of both worlds. Yeah, I mean, I on, you know I still use my 3DS a lot, in part because I have a lot of virtual console on it, you know? Yeah. And it's very easy to pick that up and play it, um, and, and play a Super NES game or something. like That's how I played through the Donkey Kong Country trilogy. It would be nicer to do that on the Switch and be able to go back and forth. Um but I also think, like, you just look at the cycle of Virtual Console from the Wii to the Wii U to the 3DS and everything. I think it was clear that was not a sustainable thing for them. Like, they really hit it hard on the Wii. The Wii, if you go back to, you can't buy these games now because they've shut down the service. But they had hundreds of Virtual Console games. They had lots from out of their first-party libraries. Like, they had all the Super Star Wars games. They had a bunch of Genesis games. They had Neo Geo on there. They had TurboGrafx-16. They had everything you'd want, pretty much, within reason, on, like, N64, SNES, NES. They didn't get some of the big, big gets, like a Golden Eye or something ever. Yeah, yeah. But that's never going to happen. But, like, they had a lot of it, and that was pretty cool. It was a bare-bones service, but a lot of it was there. And then when it went to the Wii U, some of that transferred, but most of it didn't, in part because by that point... Once the, you know, online gaming revolution had really happened and people were fully selling games online at this point. Because remember, the Wii Virtual Console was kind of before it was regular to buy games online regularly, you know? Yeah, it was, like, contemporary with, like, Xbox Live Arcade and that stuff coming around. So, at that point, all those other companies were just selling their own games online if they were. And they weren't going to let Nintendo do it because they wanted to control those IPs and everything. So, they really now could only rely on their own stuff. It even, uh, Donkey Kong Country even got yanked for a little while over something with Rare, which you think would not happen, but it did. And I think yeah. they've, they've settled all that, but, like, that happened for a year or two there. But, you know, they, they got some of it back... But they also were adding more features to them at this point with, like, the save states and all that and the different, you know, like, uh, visual features you could do. And, you know, that makes it a more complicated process. These also, like, as you have more and more games on the market, having a la carte virtual console means none of those are probably selling particularly well. Mm -hmm. I think on the 3DS, the only virtual console games that ever charted clearly on the sales charts were the Pokemon re-releases for Game Boy and Game Boy Color. Um, on the 3DS, but other than that, virtual console games never were that big. I think it's just clearly going to be more worth it to them as a company financially to make a, again, Netflix-style like compilation service where they can put games on it, and if you're paying this consistent subscription, you get those, and they also have a, subs- a, a consistent cash flow for that specific service. Mm-hmm. You know, it just it fundamentally makes more sense on that level. Again, that doesn't really help if you've been investing in virtual console, yeah. but I don't know. I I guess for me, I've just seen the writing on the wall for a while. I, I think I always thought if virtual console was going to be a thing on the Switch, it was going to be there much earlier. I think they clearly have wanted to try something new. This is going to... Because here's the thing. 
This is going to be, once they, it's weird that Super NES is not there day one. But once Super NES and N64 and other things are there, if they, assuming they don't completely drop the ball on this, which is a possibility, yeah. that it's just NES forever, or like they do that and then they introduce original Game Boy or something, only in green and black, yeah. you know? Um, assuming they do it better than that, this will be a genuine like pull for people to buy this service in a way that, like, I don't think the free games on PS Plus and Xbox Live Gold are for a lot of people. Like, I can, just speaking for myself, I am so much more likely to break out Super Mario Bros. 3 on this service on Switch than I am whatever bargain bin reject is the game of the month on Xbox Live Gold or PS Plus. And both those services have gotten a little bit better at it, but they also yeah. backslide every other month, so who knows. But, like, I just think for Nintendo fans, that's going to be a bigger draw, and it's something they can really leverage. So, I guess what I'm saying is the move makes assuming it is what we think it's going to be. It makes complete business sense to me. I think it's something that, especially if you're coming in fresh on this stuff, which let's remember a lot of Switch owners are, yeah. it's, I think, going to be an appeasing service. Again, though, I, I understand the frustration on we're not getting our virtual console games, because I have a lot of those, too. I'm frustrated in that same way. Um, you know, But, you know, everyone's doing this now, that you pay for online access. They're only charging $20 a month. And they're giving me other things that I know I will use, like cloud saves and some fun retro games. So my overall thing is like, cool, I'm fine with that. Mm -hmm. I don't know. That's yeah. I guess that's if it were all this and it was sixty dollars, yes. Oh yeah, yeah I would be yeah. very angry because I'm very angry that PS Plus and Xbox Live Gold charge sixty dollars because that's fucking stupid. Yeah. No. The one one other thing that I'm very curious to see is when this thing launches. What is going to be the percent of people that are like playing Splatoon two one day and then the next day they can't and like what <laughs> right <laughs> what do you mean you know like because it's like for us we've been knowing we've known about this since like fucking before the switch is good like the writing has been on the wall for Nintendo of they're gonna have to do something at some point probably like everybody else all the the other consoles are doing this stuff it costs money to run these kinds of online services Nintendo's doing more and more online games as time goes on they're gonna do something like this. We've been talking about this for fucking years, but the average consumer has no idea. And especially if you don't have an Xbox and you don't have a PlayStation, you have no concept that that is a normal thing. And Nintendo is the more accessible gaming system. Yeah. It always has had that. You can debate whether that's true. I think it probably is that it's more easily to use for people. And so it doesn't have that. You just If you're going to play a game online, you just play it online and you never have to think about that, right? Yeah. And that's probably an appeal for a lot of people. I agree. I, I do wonder... Because also, like, Xbox 360 didn't add Xbox Live two years into its lifespan. Right, yeah, it launched with it. So it's right. like, it launched with, if you want to use this, like, you have your silver version, you have your gold version. Like, yeah. I think PlayStation added PS Plus later, and so that, I remember there being, like, controversy around that. But PlayStation 4, like, that was a thing. Like, well, and but PlayStation 3 never put online gaming behind that's it. That's right, yeah. Play, PlayStation Plus, people don't remember this for its early years, was just the free game service. That's, that's true, yeah. And it wasn't until saves. PS4 that it then became the Xbox Live yeah. like model of also online gaming. If yeah. you want to play fucking Call of Duty, you've got to get this yeah. kind of thing. So yeah, like I'm... I. I, I don't know if it's going to be an issue. I, like, it's obviously going to be an issue for some people. The thing I don't know is... Do people, there's like the larger market of people that have bought a Switch, is there a significant enough percentage of that that like have enough knowledge of the larger like gaming space 
to not be sort of caught unawares by this, I have no idea. Because the thing you don't want to do is, like, shoot Splatoon 2 in the foot or something, Exactly. Right? If because also, they're, like, putting out DLC for it, you yeah. know? So, that being, like, I, an I, ongoing thing. I think the one thing that could help alleviate this is that I think we're all assuming this is going to be launching around Smash Brothers. That, like, Smash be, yeah. Bros. will be the first game where this is required from day yeah, one. because it's in September, and, right? Yeah. yeah. And Smash Bros. could be September or October. I'm, I'm guessing Smash Bros. is September. I'm guessing yeah. they're just going to piss off everyone on that month and be like, oh, fucking goddammit. <laughs> Last time you did this, it was at least on the Wii U and no one was playing it. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, Smash Bros. will probably be the biggest, like, concentrating event of the Switch's lifespan so far. You know, Mario Odyssey sold a lot, but Smash Bros., when it's on, is Smash Bros. You know, yeah. it fucking sells. It's the Avengers Infinity War video games. It is. And I think that could help concentrate it a little bit. It could also piss people off. I don't know. Yeah. It's going to be an interesting thing. But we'll follow it. Um, I'm I, Honestly, Nintendo's E3 is the one I'm really curious for this year because yeah. they've got a lot... I mean, they're going to show off Smash Bros., which is cool. They're going to have this. We're going to hear about some other things. Uh, I'm curious. Um, it, E3 is going to be fascinating this year yeah. because you E3's have... E3 is also... Way closer than it should be. It oh, yeah. scares me. I know. I know. I'm we sorry, have to. Sorry. We have to figure out how we're going to cover gonna it. Not in one four-hour podcast. No. No. That's my only rule. All right. My one other piece of news this week, Sean, is I saw a story on Polygon that just kind of piqued my interest. Okay. Where they reported, I'm sure this was reported other places as well, but um, there was an Electronic Arts EA uh, investor call where the um, the chief financial officer for EA, Blake Jorgensen sort of accidentally gave the number of how many Xbox One units are in the wild. Oh, yeah. And this was yeah. interesting, because we have not known. Since 2015, uh, Microsoft stopped reporting Xbox One sales numbers in 2015. Uh, so we have not heard anything about how the Xbox One is selling since then, although you can assume if it were selling well, we would have heard that. Yes, it's that old gym of, like, yeah. you knew that Call of Duty was started going over the hill once Activision was not saying, like, it's the biggest entertainment launch of the year every single year. Exactly. Yeah. So let me read just a little bit from this story to get the facts right. In yesterday's call with investors, Blake Jorgensen, the CFO for EA, was asked about EA's addressable market, that is, the space where it's selling games. Jorgensen said that EA expected an installation base of 130 million current-gen consoles at the end of this year, up from 103 million at the end of 2017. Uh-oh. As Brian Crescente noted for Variety, Sony declared the worldwide sales of PlayStation 4 at 73.6 million units at the end of 2017. That would leave 29 million Xbox One units sold at most. So, 29 million Xbox One units sold at this point in its lifespan. It's not good. Yeah. That's uh, that's kind of lower than I was thinking. Yeah, it is, yeah, it's significantly lower than the PS4. I mean, obviously that's like the whole basis of the quote. Yeah, it's over yeah. two to one. I mean, yeah, um, I, the Switch will probably surpass it. I mean, this year possibly because it's already yeah, at eighteen think, million. Yeah, I would say it's probably about next year would be when the Switch. Yeah, it is a possibility for sure, especially with Smash Brothers. But yeah, yeah. like it's. Especially like the one thing I'd be very curious is to like have obviously more direct numbers and also. Right. What is the Xbox One X, PS4 Pro split like? Like, how does that stuff start figuring into the sales? That's something that we haven't gotten definitive numbers on. I think on either side really no. yet, and that's something I'm very curious to see how successful those were because that's something like thinking going back to E3. I was thinking about this the other day of because in a couple of weeks here we're going to have to do like a whole E3 predictions episode yeah. kind of thing, and so I've been thinking about that kind of stuff and. 
Last year, Microsoft's entire E3 press conference was entirely predicated upon the Xbox One X. That was their whole thing. They had they had teased it the previous E3, and it was like, okay, now their whole show, they, they opened with it. Their whole show was going to be about it. They kind of lost track of it in the middle, and but they came back on it at the end. That was their fucking pitch was Xbox One X. And I feel like, and then it came out later that year, and since then, since like last October and November, whenever it came out, I feel like I haven't heard one fucking peep about the Xbox One X. No. It, it never comes up. I, like, listen to a lot of video game podcasts. I never fucking hear anything about it. It's just, like... Tech websites are very interested in it, but because it's the one to test, like, current-gen games on... Yeah. Other than that, you're right. I, I don't hear, like, critics ever mention it in their reviews or something. Yeah, where, like, compared to... And part of this is, like, the video game exclusive thing of that I've been hearing a lot about the PS4 Pro because God of War just came out. Yes. So there's a lot of talk about, like, oh, the PS4 Pro version does this and well, this and that and that. When you, when you have precisely zero exclusives to run a game a system on... Yeah. Like, no, you're not going to hear about it. Sea of Thieves made no significant use of the Xbox One X, and not a lot of people played it. So, like, <laughs> you know, no, you're not hearing about it, because they have zero games for that thing. Yeah. So it's like, what the fuck is this year's E3 conference going to no, be for I, Microsoft if last year was Xbox One X? And I realized it's like, they have nothing to fucking talk about. Yeah, I mean, I, like I said... Halo and Gears of War. Like I said, Nintendo is the, is the one I'm most interested in just personally, because they have stuff I'm interested in. Sony, I feel like we know the games we're going to see, and I'm excited because they're cool games, but Xbox might be the most interesting on the morbid level of, like, it's like driving by a car crash of, like, what do they have left to show us? Because they have nothing on the calendar. They have Crackdown and State of Decay, and and Crackdown might never actually be a thing. So, like, they have... Nothing. And also, State of the Cape 2 is coming out, like, soon. Like, yes. soon enough that it's not going to be a thing that... I mean, it was never going to be a big show at, at an E3 press conference. No. But I don't even think they're probably going to show it. No. They might talk about it. But so... Yeah, I feel like this year's E3, fucking Microsoft and EA, should just, like, hold this, like, one press conference that is just, like... Just Call just, of Duty. It's just Call of Duty. They just sit there and be like, oh, man... You know, we had a fucking... We, had we were on top of the world. Yeah, it's like, but, remember the 360 generation, man? It was so good. But, like, back to those numbers. The 29 yeah. million. You know, that is not Wii U Dreamcast disaster level numbers. But it is also not sustainable console business. Yeah, they're not numbers. blowing up the world. Yeah, and, yeah. and, again, as I said, the Switch is going to be surpassing that in a couple of years. But by the end of this year, possibly. And that will just fundamentally change this space. Because... It has been for a couple of generations now, you know, Microsoft and Sony kind of in one corner, Nintendo in another corner. Now, the dynamics of those corners has shifted. Yeah, dramatically you know, from dr- generation to generation. Right. But, like, you could kind of put these consoles on this rough parity in these areas in part because of where sales were, you know. And obviously the Wii is the highest selling console of the seventh generation, but most of its sales were concentrated in the first couple of years, and then it petered off. Yeah. And then from there on out, the 360 and the PS3 were more or less neck and neck. And so it was this very even thing. And again, I just, I'm really questioning what does the third party space look like in a world where the PS4 and the Xbox One are in technical parity, but have a chasm of sales between them. And the Nintendo Switch is every day inching up on everything else. Yeah. And I don't think anyone knows the answer to that yet, but I think we're going to find out. And I think it's going to be... I mean, this generation is just one of upheaval with the the the, the changes to like with the, the PS4 Pro and the Xbox One X and these mid-generation refreshes and what does that mean going forward. And the Nintendo Switch debuting right in the middle of the generation and being yeah. this huge success. 
and you know, I'm just I'm, and Xbox kind of transitioning to having all their games on PC. Yeah, and taking this weird sort of strategy of of being like, no man, it's cool. You don't want to buy an Xbox? That's fine, man. That's that's okay. That's cool. Yeah, you can play on PC. You can play wherever. Anyway, like it's fine. Yeah, it's cool. I still think my prediction that this could be the last Xbox generation is not unfounded. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, again, I don't know I what mean, the they probability also, is. They just, but. with the fucking naming thing, they just back themselves into a corner because it's like, I feel like that's going to be the meaning they have is, well, we, you know, do we want to do another console? And then someone says, well, what do we name it? And it's just like, oh, fuck, that's right. Let's just, Let's just not do it. It's too much. It's fucking, I'm not want to fucking get a whiteboard out here and like, because we can't call it Xbox 2, can we? Someone call Sony, see if they want the Master Chief. <laughs> yeah. No, I... Because, yeah, I, and again, if if their announcement this year is Gears of War 5 and Halo 6, that oh is God. not going to fucking gut it no, for yeah. anyone. Yeah. I don't know. All right. So, yes, uh, the industry is in a very interesting place. Just a little... Maybe this was a little preview of E3 coverage. Yeah. A little amuse-bouche. I'm very excited for this year's E3 in a way that is different from how I'm usually excited about E3 because it's like, I don't know what the fuck's going to happen for anybody other than Nintendo and Sony. Yeah, it's, it's a bizarre one. But anyway, let's go ahead and move on. That's all we have on the outline. You want to talk some Star Wars? What's going on in the world of Star Wars, Jonathan? Well, there's a new movie coming out in a couple weeks. Yes. But that's not what we're talking about today. We're talking about an old movie. The oldest Star Wars movie. Yes, Star Wars, the movie. Yes. The Star Wars. Also known as Episode 4, A New Hope. Again, we have been doing a series of talking about the Star Wars movies in this chronological order. Episode 1, Episode 2, Episode 3 to talk about the prequels. We thought, that was fun. Let's talk about something a little simpler, a little easier to talk about. Let's talk about the originals. And of course, we are starting today with Episode 4, A New Hope. The movie also just known as Star Wars. And in fact... That's how I always think of it. It's just yeah. Star Wars to me. Because I think a lot of younger people don't know this. That movie was just called Star Wars until, I think, the 2004 DVDs is when they really came out hard with I that. I think it was, I, because I'm pretty sure my 90s VHS tapes still have the episode 4 New Hope on them. Well, because my 90s VHS tapes, what they did is they had the big titles. Which just One said Star Wars, one said The Empire Strikes Back, and oh, one said Return on, of like, Jedi. Oh, you mean on the spines? And on the front. Mm-hmm. This, the original special, because the special editions were put in theaters as Star Wars, Empire, Return of the Jedi. If you look at those posters, it's an interesting thing. Now, they probably did do a VHS yeah. re-release, I'm guessing around Phantom Menace, where they redid those with the episode titles. But it took a while for like Lucasfilm to embrace, we're going to call these episodes 4, 5, 6. Yeah. Even though... The next two movies always had episode five and six in the crawl. Um, but yeah, that's vamping enough. Sean, Star Wars, A New Hope, whatever you want to call it. Yes. It's one of the greatest movies ever. Yes. Like, it's it's one of the greatest movies. It's like one of the most sort of like important revolutionary movies in the history of cinema. And it was something that, because I watched it uh, this morning and I spent a lot of today being like, I'm going to like read about Star Wars in preparation of this this conversation, Star Wars the movie. And, and realizing this is maybe the most, like, discussed and written about movie. Maybe. Like, what I, of? What of? Yeah, it's like, up there. I, I went in, since I'm a part of um, MSU Denver as part of the, the teacher thing, I have access to JSTOR through the right. Auraria Library. For people who don't know, JSTOR is an academic database. And I was like, I'm just curious. I was just going to go in there and type in Star Wars and type in some other shit. Stars had, like, 30,000-something hits. No, since Kane had, like, 6,000. Yeah, if you think you're being uh, cute, picking Star Wars as your academic thing... It's fine. You can do it. You're not being revolutionary or yeah, clever. No, it's, it's 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 substantial. There's been a substantial amount of academic writing and obviously like pop writing around Star Wars 
in a way that is staggering and terrifying. I guess what I always come back to with the original Star Wars is I think this is pretty much a perfect movie. And one of the most perfect things about it is how imperfect it is in so many ways. Mm -hmm. It just, it has rough edges and it has things that feel kind of unfinished and awkward to it. And John Williams is doing a lot of the heavy lifting on this one to get it working. If people think that the, the goofy, bad dialogue was a invention of the prequels, like, nope, 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 nope. And yet, it just sings, the whole thing. And it is also, I was thinking about this, it's the only Star Wars movie that feels like an underdog. It's the Mm -hmm. one that was made by, you know, a young filmmaker, passionate to just get this vision on screen, doing it by the seat of his pants, with not that much of a budget, with a crew that probably did not fully understand what the hell he was going for, um, with all these, you know, new actors eager to prove themselves, and that just sense of, of fun and invention and, you know, we're going to put on a show, goddammit. Yeah. This is the one Star Wars movie where you can say that's what the movie is. And I love that about it. And I have always loved that about it. And, you know, I really tried to take a serious look at it this time. Because I have seen this one more than any other Star Wars movie. I have seen this probably as much as any movie I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. I know it to death. I've seen a million parodies. So it's like, it's, this is honestly a kind of hard movie to just sit down and watch on its own terms. But trying to do that and making the concentrated effort of putting myself in the space of I watched one, I watched two, I watched three, let's watch four. The same way, I was struck... Once again, by just how good a movie it is, how well constructed it is, how much it works sometimes in spite of itself, and and that it is just one of the most relentlessly and effortlessly, even though obviously a lot of effort went into it, entertaining movies ever. Yeah. No, I, I agree with all of that. And one of the things that struck me watching it this time is something that struck me the past couple of times I watched it, because I watched it really recently... In 2015, before Force Awakens came out, yeah, and so it's been in, it's been recent memory for me as well. Is when like this is in some ways it is both like the most Star Wars movie of all the Star Wars movies, but it's also the least Star Wars movie of all the Star Wars movies. With, by which I mean, when I watch it, it feels even though I've you know we we're doing this like one two three four five six thing. It feels totally disconnected from the rest of Star Wars to me in some ways. It's like Darth Vader in this movie is not Luke's dad. Like, he's just not. Like, I can't read the movie that way. I don't read him as being Anakin from 1, 2, and 3. I can't. Like, like to me, he is this, like, he's just like, he is this villain. He is like Obi-Wan's old apprentice. It's like, I take in this movie everything that Obi-Wan says in that big exposition dub. That is the reality of this movie. It's like what they talk about in later movies, what was established in the prequels. There has no bearing to me on like the reality of what occurs in the plot of this film because it makes no fucking sense for it to. Like, you know, Leia is not Luke's sister. Like, no, you God, just, no. You just can't watch this movie and have that be true. It just doesn't fucking work. So much about what this movie is is it feels like it need you need to, for me, read the movie as completely its own thing, and then everything else exists like like sort of bolted onto this. This is the center of the supernova. And everything else is the gas emanating out from it, but none of that stuff feeds back into this one. Is maybe one way to say it. Yeah, it, yeah. Those all those things. I don't want to say ancillary because it made like I love the larger Star Wars universe, but and, and this thing is obviously a part of and the originator of all of that. But because it is the originator of it, it's almost like here's a good comparison. It's like the Hobbit in the Lord of the Rings. Like when I'm reading the Hobbit, the book. These the movies are obviously a very different fucking conversation for that. But when you're reading the book, the Hobbit. The Lord of the Rings doesn't exist to me. Like, no, it's you, so... Like, obviously, they're technically 
a part of the same universe and Jared Tolkien rewrote significant sections of The Hobbit to like make them fit together better. But even still, The Hobbit is 100% its own thing that has these like technical connections to The Lord of the Rings, but they exist in like these like slightly different like like dimensions or something from one another. That they they it's obviously the events of The Hobbit happened in the in the world of the Lord of the Rings, but it's not exactly the Hobbit that I read in the same way that this movie, like the events of this movie obviously occur in the same dimension in the same universe that episode five, six, one, two, and three, all that shit happens, but it's just slightly off. It's just slightly in its own shell. And so this is like a version of that timeline where no straight up Darth Vader's not Luke's dad. He's some other Jedi that, that fell to evil and, and helped destroy the old Republic. It's like, Leia is not Luke's sister. She is just a princess of Alderaan that has no relationship to Luke at all. Luke is just the son of this Jedi Knight that was murdered by Darth Vader. Like, that is the reality of this movie to me. Like, the past three times maybe I've watched it, and this time, I cannot read the movie other than in that way. And that's funny, because I had kind of a different reaction, where I very much... I think this is only the second time I've watched the movies in order 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, Hmm. ever... Um, so I kind of tried to think of it that way. I also like I just went to the next Blu-ray in my set. I didn't. I right. have the despecialized editions, and I really like those. But I just thought for this one, I'm just going to go with the next one on the Blu-ray. Yeah, I watched the despecialized editions this time. Which the okay. last time I watched it was the special editions from the DVD. Yeah. The, the time before that was not the de- the despecialized editions on the internet, but like the one weird limited edition thing they did right. that has the original theatrical run yeah. in shitty potato quality on like the B side. Yeah. Basically. And we'll, we'll get to the special yeah. edition, non-special edition thing, but I just kind of like continued on with it, and I tried to think of it as like, this is the next Star Wars, just as like a thought experiment, just like yes. for fun, and obviously there's a lot that doesn't work if you do it that way, I would say aesthetically more than anything else, like it's, this is a 70s ass movie in a lot of ways, like, yes, exactly. it yeah. obviously presages a lot of the 80s, but it also like, just in its basic like textural quality, looks like a, a 70s film student movie you know not like I mean like one of those one of those mini directors who came out of film school not literally a film student made it but like um, yeah so some of it does work though like the the way I think George Lucas integrated R2 and 3PO in the prequels not always entirely smooth as we talked about but the way he does it enough knowing that they are our entry point into the next movies is kind of this fun thing of like if you're coming off episode three they're the people you're with right and it's like oh we come back to r2 and 3po and everything has changed around them but they are still very recognizably r2d2 and c3po and they create a uh, they leave a trail of continuity problems in their wake of that darth vader and Baru and owen don't know him and obi-wan doesn't know like all these things of like you guys were like best friends, all of you. Yeah. Like this makes no fucking sense. But you, you put that aside. That was kind of interesting. Um, the fact that it—I mean, we'll talk about this later. That this movie is very weirdly paced in that it takes seventeen minutes for Luke to appear in the movie. Yeah, is like something where it has this feeling of like you come back into this world and then you meet this new hero and then he goes out and rediscovers all these altered corners of the world that you saw in the prequels. And I kind of was also had Force Awakens on the mind because one of the many ways Force Awakens borrows from this movie is to say, all right, new hero who goes out into the world and discovers what had been there before, sort of. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there is that feeling of like, oh, he goes and meets Obi-Wan and we knew that guy from the prequels or something. I was just kind of trying to put myself in the, in the mindset of someone who was maybe going in order. And it kind of worked better than I thought it would. Although I'm doing it with this thought experiment thing where, like, I know the movie really well and I can play with it in my head. And overall, yeah, like, 
would I recommend you should start watching Star Wars with The Phantom Menace and then go through to... No. No, yeah. You should make A New Hope your first Star Wars movie if you're new to these, obviously. Um, I think you can debate the order after that. But, like, this is the first Star Wars movie and it would be weird to start there. But, like, it makes some scenes so much fun. Like, Obi-Wan's whole exposition dump. I love that you can read it in three ways, basically. Yeah. One, what you just said, which is... They didn't have it all planned out, obviously, when they wrote this movie. Yeah. And so it's just parallel universe. All of that is true. You can do the, he is an asshole and a liar, and he's really manipulating this poor kid here. Or I like it of, Alec Guinness is just a good enough actor, and he does enough in that scene that you can kind of read whatever you want onto him. Yeah. Like, that line where he says, don't recall ever owning a droid, does not track with the prequels at all, right? Especially uh-huh. because he owned that particular droid. Yeah. But, like... You can't, he just has this playfulness in his eyes that kind of makes it work. Like, he knows he's concealing it because there's no point explaining it. Like, I could explain the history of this fucking droid to you, Luke, but, you know, there are th- it would involve things I can't tell you yet. Yeah. Or, like, the way he says that line of about Luke's father of, you know, he was a great Jedi and a good friend, and then, like, leans back in his chair. Obviously, you know, how Alec Guinness, the actor, is playing that in the moment is, I had a friend who was murdered and I'm mad at Darth Vader. But you can also kind of read it as, he is older, he is more wistful, he is thinking of the Anakin he once knew, and he's just sad, and it's like, what I just said is true enough, and I can leave it at that. And so I don't know. I I think what it speaks to more than anything is that Lucas laid a rich enough foundation here that not only could he build on it limitlessly, as we have seen ever since, but that you can go back to this one and while there are issues in how certain things in continuity hold up, it's still Star Wars and it's still if it, it's it still feels like such a vital part of this universe. Yeah, it, it, it's because it's an interesting thing is that, you know, thinking about that exposition scene with Obi-Wan, that it's not just the prequels that make that scene complicated, it is episode five. Right, Because it's yeah. like, episode five is the movie that then establishes that, like, you're a lying sack of shit, Obi-Wan. <laughs> and from, in episode five, Obi-Wan is a lying sack of shit, and he was lying to Luke when he was in that fucking hovel, and, like, everything he said was utter horseshit, and he was just manipulating Luke. But in this movie, when I'm watching this movie... For whatever reason, and it didn't used to be like this, but for I think it's something of like once I started learning more about like the backstory of how the movie came to be and that kind yeah, of yeah. stuff, I started to see like, oh, right, of course, this movie is it's just itself. And like thinking of it, particularly when you think of it as being Star Wars, and that's just the title of the movie. And obviously, like originally, Lucas kind of wanted it to be like, oh, you should have an episode blah, 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 on here, Journey of the Journal of the Wheels, and blah, 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 Luke Starkiller, all that. Eventually got pared down to this is movie is just going to be called Star Wars. They didn't necessarily really expect that there would be a sequel. Not many people thought that this movie was going to be successful. All that kind of stuff. And this movie has a definitive ending. And if you think of it as like, this is just the end of it. This is just Star Wars. When I watch this movie now, like, that is just, that is the movie that I'm saying is like, this movie just stops. It's over. This is done. And there are other Star Wars movies that are made. But like... This movie just exists in this weird bubble to me now that I, it's, it's hard for it to be penetrated. I'll say this. When I watched the original theatrical cut through the old crappy DVD yeah. or the very, very good despecialized edition, uh, I definitely have that sensation more of like this is its own movie. Yeah. When you watch like the special editions, there's yes. enough of modern Lucas's hand in there that it's easier for it to just feel like... Star, you know, part of the larger Star Wars canon. Although, I was actually... I, I forgot how much is left genuinely unaltered in the special editions. Like, there are still matte shots. 
there are still like you can still tell when things are a little toy being yeah. filmed close up. You can you know there's a lot of like they didn't go in and fix the lightsaber coloring so it doesn't be you know like there's a lot more they could have fixed that he frankly showed restraint with. Yeah. Although I the lightsaber one is always the one that's like you should have just fixed that you should have just made that look a bit better because there's a couple of shots of Alligators where he points the lightsaber right into the camera. Yes. You're not supposed to do that because nobody knows or should know what a lightsaber looks like when you stare down straight at the top of it because that's an impossible it shouldn't you can't do yeah. that it and breaks I've, the effect. And I've always been surprised that was never fixed in the special editions because yeah. that would be a relatively easy rotoscope recoloring. Yeah, and I would I think they should have done it. Yes, I'll but, go on record. That's a change you should have made. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, but we're talking a lot about like the movie within the bigger context and stuff because yeah. it is interesting. But let's go to this basic question, Sean. Just okay. taking this as its own movie, and I think yes. we'll come back to the question of the larger franchise because that's part of what we're doing. But as a movie, why does Star Wars 1977 work so well? Why did it work so well? Why does it continue to? And that's a broad yes. question. Yes. But is there one or two things you kind of latch on to thinking about that? Well, like, the first thing to go to is, is I feel like, our, our constant refrain in this podcast of that when there is a work in its time that is revolutionary, it is, like, always revolutionary. It always has that creative energy to it. That is 100% true of this movie. There's stuff that they do with effects. And, it's like, especially watching the, the despecialized editions and all that this time highlighted for me that, like, the effects are still incredibly impressive in this movie. The, like, feats in set design and world building are still, like, jaw-dropping, you know? They're still, like, the only times they've been rivaled, really, is, like, in Phantom Menace, in something like that. That that stuff still holds so fucking strong. Everything about the realization of the universe is basically perfect, you know, from... The, the goofy, weird hats that the rebel guys wear in the first scene, you know. But, like, like R2-D2 and C-3PO, like, stumbling around and all the sound effects of, like, R2-D2 and C-3PO's, like, weird sort of, like, stuttered walk. All that stuff is so perfectly realized. And it is also the, like, it's the lived-in sci-fi universe thing that I think is very easy to forget that that is not... Ridley Scott did not, like, invent that. Like, that's, like, it's not Alien in Blade Runner... Alien and Brave World Runner got that from Star Wars. Star Wars was one of, if not like the first, like it's certainly like the first major big blast, big blockbuster kind of movie. It, it's one of like the first. Yeah, major you can actually just yeah. stop the sentence there, but yes, yes, but like you know what I mean. Like mainstream films that did this vision of the future that was not plastic, white, perfect, like utopian Star Trekky kind of like you know. Think of, like, the way that the interior of the Corellian frigate uh, at the beginning of the movie looks of, like, it does have these nice white sheer walls, but there's, like, dirt and grime in those walls even there. But then especially when you get to that fucking Millennium Falcon set, it's like, that is a dirty-ass set. That, like, that does not look like I would not want to sit on those chairs because you know you're going to come up with a bad fucking stain on your pants, right? Yeah. Like, everything about this universe, particularly when you get, like, the Moss Eisley Cantina and stuff like that. It feels lived in, like the technology feels used. This feels like a universe, a galaxy in which these people have lived. There's a history, there's an experience here, you know, this and, and all the exposition, like the two major exposition scenes, you have the Obi-Wan's exposition scene and then the Empire's exposition scene with Tarkin and, and Vader that are, are close to each other. Both of those exposition scenes like deliver this sense of like, there's all this history here and this sort of mythology and the sense of, of myth and weight here that most movies don't have because it's hard for a movie to have something like that. You have a very limited running time. This movie is like a solid two hours. 
you know, it's not a like long, expansive tome of a novel. It's not fucking off its metamorphoses or something. You know, it doesn't have all this space to build out that history. It has to present that history entirely through just the visuals and the little hints of world building you get in the dialogue in some of those scenes. And this movie handles it perfectly. You know? It's it's the head of a pin of a yeah. larger universe. And you just have this one relatively little adventure on that head of the pin. And, you know, you are in Luke's shoes and Luke can see very little of this. And you can see very little of this. And yet, you know, the, the best line in the movie, because it just speaks to the movie itself, is Obi-Wan saying, you've taken your first steps into a larger world. And that's what this whole movie feels like. It's just this series of little steps. But they are little steps in a world that feels like it expands so far beyond the boundaries of the screen. It expands in every single direction. And obviously, in 1977, we hadn't gone to those places yet. But we would, and it is uh, still speaks to this movie that we have gone to many of those places in those surrounding directions, but you can still come back here. And I guess this is the thing I would follow up on everything you said, yeah. is that the adventure on that head of the pin that they've created is so well done. It yeah. is such a well-told story. It has amazing characters. It is paced weirdly in some ways for, like, if you compare it to some other movies, but I think it is paced perfectly it has an extremely teachable and savvy use of the three-act structure it moves beautifully there's not a slow moment in this thing unless you are used to like i don't know transformers or something but like it i just think this sucker moves and it is consistently entertaining and it feels like you never stay with like one status quo too long because you're meeting someone or there's a new character dynamic or there's a new emotional changeover for the characters all the way up to that just fantastic trench run at the end which even then does not overstay its welcome because once you've blown up the death star we have our celebration and then we're done let's yep. go let's go home and it's just the whole movie just moves and so it does that on the foundation of this really you know amazing piece of world building but even if you know a lot more about what that world is you come back to this and it, again it just it feels like you're going back for the first time to enter the world again and what a story of discovery it is it works so well yeah so it is it is both a feat of like this really phenomenal like basic like built on like the foundations of storytelling story with this just marvelous feat of of set building and design and and all the technical aspects of the film like that fucking trench run is still kind of mind blowing to me just how well the effects hold up yeah. like you would not expect that at all <laughs> it's like every no, time because... it's like this still looks fucking good i still don't really understand how they made it look like this no it's it's incredibly well done i think you know, most modern CGI-driven action scenes aren't going to look that or feel that good. And part of it is it just it has a sense of the choreography of it beyond any of that. It does not feel constrained by what they were able to do. It feels like they made the sequence they wanted to make. Yeah. And part of that is I, I something I wanted to focus on because I think it's fascinating is I think the editing of this movie yes, is yeah. tremendous. It is teachable. If you have any interest in editing, you should watch Star Wars and learn from it. Like maybe just put it on mute. Although I don't think you'd want to do that. Because you want to hear the John Williams. Yeah. But like, look at how it is cut. And look at how much of the tension and the excitement and when it happens, the emotionality comes through in where they choose to hold, where they choose to cut, where they choose to move things around. You know, Star Wars famously had a, a very troubled production in yeah. just about every way. If things could go wrong for George Lucas and friends, 
they pretty much did on the set of Star Wars. And then when they went to edit the movie, the first assembly cut of this movie apparently just did not work. And it was limp, and it sat there. They had all that shit with fucking Biggs Darklighter and everybody, all yeah. Luke's friends. That you'd, Like, now that footage exists on the Blu-ray, but for yeah. the longest time, like, that was something you kind of heard was a part of the cut. Right. It's like, that weird dude with a mustache is actually Luke's friend on Tatooine. It's like, oh, yes. okay. Yeah. A li- which, like, a little bit of is put back in the special edition and shouldn't be there because it kills the flow. Yeah. But, like... Yeah, it, but it wasn't even the deleted scenes. Just with the scenes that are there, like, they just weren't moving. And it was really Marsha Lucas, George Lucas's wife at the time, who came in and led the team to re-edit it and found a way to, to put energy back in through the edit. Like, one of the most famous examples. And if you watch it, you can tell this is what they're doing, if you look closely. But it's great, is when the Sand People attack Luke when he's going to meet Obi-Wan. And the one does the thing where he lifts the rod and he goes, ooh, yeah. ooh, ooh, ooh. Yes. On set, he just did it once. And he lifted it and put it back down. And they said, well, that's not very interesting. So they looped the footage and had him do it three times and then move on. And it's little tricks like that where, like, it is just a savvily, smartly edited movie. And if you watch that trench run at yes. the end, I bet if you let a lot of those shots run at length, they wouldn't look very good. They probably wouldn't feel that tight. But when you put it all together, it is just assembled so fucking well and so intelligently. And then you put John Williams on top. And, uh, well, spoiler for my ultimate thought, I don't think this movie works basically one iota without John Williams. But we'll get yeah. there. Um, but the editing is still very important. It put the window in for Williams to come in and do his thing. Yeah. But, like, it is just, it is super well edited. And, and you know, if, if you want a, a way to think about this, I think there's kind of two general forms of editing in cinema or TV. There's assemblage, which is just putting it together, and it's always been decided how long a shot is running and how, you know, what the shot order is going to be. There are plenty of movies that have been made that way, where the editor is more technically assembling what they have rather than making active artistic choices. You know, I would say for live action, um, a Yasujiro Ozu movie from Japan, Mm -hmm. he had his stuff very meticulously planned. The editor was putting his movie together, not finding the movie in the cut, you know? Um, In animation... Most hand-drawn animation, I don't really know how this works in CGI, but you have your movie storyboarded, your storyboards have second counts, you, you, there is an editor, but they are a technical person putting the footage together, and they are not deciding, like, this is better at two seconds rather than yeah, three. because it's so expensive to, yes. to animate something that you're not going to use. Yeah. yeah. And then you have editing, which is, you know, the thing we think of as a more artistic process of choosing. And sometimes these things obviously blend and mix and all that. But I think as a, a general rule, you can kind of think of it this way, of taking all this footage we have and kind of finding the rhythm of it in the edit. Star Wars is one of those movies. Um... You know, most action movies are like that. Yeah, because an action movie, like, if you pay attention to how that trench run scene is edited, it's like, you're, no, every once in a while you, like, just cut to, like, a half-second shot of, like, a targeting computer and something like that. Right. It's like, so much of the flow of an action scene is some longer shots broken up by, like, little tiny, like, close-ups to things and bits and and bobbles like that, particularly in a car chase scene or something like that. Yeah, and you're thinking about, you know, in those moments, where am I going to cut to keep people's attention, help them understand the geography of the scene, keep the stakes high, you don't want to be in one area that, like, you wouldn't want to keep the cut on Luke kind of holding back early in the sequence because he's not in immediate danger, so you go to the other people and cut back to Luke to see his reactions, those sorts of things, right? Yeah. You know, a very, very extreme example of this is like Terrence Malick's movies. 
uh, post-70s where he shoots like a million feet of footage and then spends five years editing and finds the movie completely in the editing room. And I think like a mix of this would be something like a Kurosawa film where I would say most of probably the dialogue stuff in Seven Samurai, Kurosawa was standing over the editor's shoulder with a samurai sword being like, you, you cut what I shot, yeah. right? Um, but when it's a giant action sequence... They shot a lot, and he's probably working very closely, more friendly with the editor, yeah. figuring out how we're going to make the rhythm of this work. And Star Wars really is, though, it's the editing is, is an artistic element of this film in terms of how much I think it, it brings this thing to life. And just like pay attention to where they hold things, where they cut things. It's really interesting. There are some shots that it could survive in the movie where the editing could not save them. The one that I think of most... I think is the most awkward moment in any Star Wars movie is where uh, Luke, they're standing outside. So it's Luke and Obi-Wan have, have, they're heading back and they find the place where the Jawas have all been murdered, right? Yeah, yeah, It's a really good scene. But then at the end, Luke is like, oh, they're going home. Home. And Obi-Wan says, wait, Luke, it's too dangerous. And normally Luke would, by the end of that line, be in the speeder and leaving. And that would be the cut would be on Obi-Wan saying it. But what happens is Obi-Wan says it and Mark Hamill has barely moved, and he's not running that fast, and he moves towards the speeder, gets in, he's in the wrong seat, he moves to the right seat, he, like, does the dials, and then like, he goes on off. his seatbelt, like, checks the mirror. Yeah, <laughs> and it's, like, 20 seconds between what should be the beat of that scene, which is, wait, Luke, it's too dangerous, and him speeding off. And if you want to laugh, look at Alec Guinness in the back, just kind of holding the expression, yeah. and not, because he doesn't have anything more to say, that was his line. And also listen to John Williams' vamp. Because it's about to go into a really famous part of the score, but he's like, I've got 20 seconds to fill here, and I've got to make this pasty kid running through the desert look exciting. Yeah. And there's a bunch of, like, I love those rough edges on this movie. Because, again, it, like, part of what you were saying with the, uh, the set design and everything, part of that is it's just a 70s movie. Yeah. And everything was dirty in the 70s, and there's no movie where things look pristine in the 70s. It's the era of every filmmaker was on cocaine and being depressed. And that's what all those fucking movies are. And this movie basically looks like one of those, but is more optimistic at its core. Yeah. And so, you know, you have these, like, rundown sets and everything, but you also have kind of these rough edges, because it's, again, that, that film school mentality of, you know, kind of being... Kind of being too ambitious for maybe your actual, like, what you have, but you're going to make it work, which is a lot of movies in that era, which is a thing I love about them. And Star Wars, you know, brought it to a more, what we would call, blockbuster palette. Yeah. But, yeah. Anyway... Getting off topic, I just think that fucking moment is hilarious, and also yeah. an example of of where editing can save things and where it can't. Yes, if, like staying on some of the rough edges. I want to talk about the dialogue. Oh yeah, in it's this movie fucking terrible. There's there's some there's like a couple of times where just like people use like overuse the same word. I think we we I talked about I think probably on one of the prequel ones of the. Darth Vader saying, I've sensed the presence, I haven't felt since. It's like, what, who, how did nobody, like, say, read that line aloud to themselves? Or, like, at the fucking read-through, where you have all the people there reading the fucking dialogue, and nobody said, maybe we should find a synonym for one of these words, because you can't use the word sense and sense in the same sentence. It sounds so fucking awkward. Or another one I really love is when uh, Alderaan blows up, and Obi-Wan says, it's like... It's as if a thousand voices suddenly cried out and were suddenly silenced. It's like you can't have suddenly twice in that. You can't put suddenly twice in one sentence because the second suddenly isn't sudden anymore because you've already had something that's sudden. You have to cut out the first one and say it's like a thousand voices cried out and were suddenly silenced. 
That's like a fucking line of dialogue in a movie, not suddenly cried out and we're suddenly silenced. You can't do that. It's like anybody with the most like basic sense of how to write dialogue would immediately tell you, cut out one of those fucking... Like, it's almost like you should have found a way in the edit to cut out one of those fucking words because it's so appalling to me that that, that's, that was left in there. It's, it's, it is just all over this movie are like just little turns of phrase. Anything that's not like a line of dialogue that is either like just entirely functionally expository because I think actually a lot of the exposition in the movie works for me pretty well usually because it's given to the best actors like Alec Guinness or or uh, Peter Cushing or James Earl Jones or like if it's or Harrison Ford is kind of able to work with some of this stuff pretty well I think Han's dialogue is pretty good he has the best like funniest stuff in the movie the whole thing was like we had a malfunction up here yeah um, but but we're fine we're f- how are you that whole thing like that's fucking hilarious and it's ninety percent Harrison Ford yeah but, and, it, and and I suspect it might one hundred percent be Harrison Ford because that sounds improvisational it to does me, sound improvisational yeah. because but yeah most of the dialogue that is not either like that stuff or is just like totally functional moving the plot forward stuff anything that's like a little bit of like that like suddenly silenced and like I haven't sensed this presence since anything like that just feels like so clunky just like you can't like anything that's in that like little mills like gray space of dialogue that's not like totally functional but it's not totally superfluous but you do, do need it but you can't have like cut it it's like that stuff just gets so awkward I mean let's pay attention to this Sean I'm gonna I'm gonna ask us to read through some of this dialogue, okay? Okay. I will read everyone else. You be Darth Vader, okay? okay. And when non-professional actors are doing this, just pay attention to the syntax of this. This is from an expository. Scene. Okay. Do you want me to do a Darth Vader impression, or do you want me to say it normally? Say it normally, because that's the point of this exercise. Okay. Okay. Uh, what of the rebellion? If the rebels have obtained a complete tactical reading of this station, it is possible, however unlikely, they might find a weakness and exploit it. The plans you refer to will soon be back in our hands. Any attack made by the rebels against this station would be a useless gesture, no matter what technical data they have obtained. This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. Don't be too proud of this technological terror you have constructed. The ability to destroy a planet is insignificant next to the power of the Force. Don't try to frighten us with your sorcerer's ways, Lord Vader. Your sad devotion to that ancient religion has not helped you conjure up the stolen data tapes or given you clairvoyance enough to find the rebels' hidden fort. I find your lack of faith disturbing. That's a great line. Yes. That's a great line. I find your lack of faith disturbing. The rest of that exchange, if you strip away all the, like, the set and the cool James Earl Jones voice and the other actors in the room... I mean, that is like a fifth grader writing science fiction yeah. to some degree. You have to give so many props to James Earl Jones for being able to say a line like, do not be too proud of this technological terror you have constructed. Like, that is so hard to say. This <laughs> technological terror you have constructed. The ability to destroy a planet is insignificant. It's the ability to destroy a planet. Like, it's just so and You can't awkward. even get your, word, your mouth around it. Yeah, right? it's, like, it's like if Shakespeare is on one end of the spectrum, this is on the exact opposite end of the spectrum from Shakespeare. And yet, we can still love this movie to death with that glaring flaw. Yeah. And I think we're making a couple points here. Yes. One, you cannot criticize the dialogue as a like fundamental flaw of The Phantom Menace or something. And then turn around and say, oh, but I love Star Wars. It's perfect. Yeah. No. It's, it, it, that is hypocrisy of the highest order. Yeah. All right? Also, George Lucas can be a good writer, maybe even a great writer, and not be good at dialogue. Yes. And those are non-exclusionary things. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. There are plenty of writers that can't write dialogue fucking for shit, but can write like either prose or just like 
a sort of structuralist sense of plot and story and movement and pacing yes. really well. We talked about this a lot with the prequels, and it's just as true here in a lot of ways. George Lucas has trouble with dialogue, and yeah. there is something about, I think, the overall like tenor of A New Hope in that it has that slightly amateurish quality to it of like being... This, like, you know, first time out, we're all going to go make a sci-fi movie thing that it just feels earnest in the right way. Yeah. Um, which the other ones don't have because Lawrence Kasdan wrote them and he knows what he's doing. So, yeah. like, the, it works. But, like, there is that gap. But I still think you can look at the dialogue and say, and, and you can say, okay, that doesn't all work. But how he writes characters, how he structures the plot, how he writes scenes and rising and falling tension and stuff... And I think in the prequels, like, complicated political themes, all of that works great. He's really good at that. Like, I think one of the things we'll need to talk about here is just how phenomenally every character in this movie is built as a character yeah. within a relatively short amount of time. And those are also writerly things, where even if the words coming out of their mouth sometimes are not working, so many other things are it's okay. Well, and also, it's like, it's the, 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 it's not that the dialogue doesn't work, it's that it's not elegant, you know? Sure, it's, yeah. it's something of where the, the, the problem with the line, I have not sensed a presence like this since, isn't that, like, it makes no sense, or, like, it doesn't, it doesn't convey, like, the, the sort of syntactic meaning it's trying to convey. It does all of that, it just does it in this way that is very clunky sounding. Right. Um, but it does tell you, like, exactly what you need to know. It's like, yes, Darth Vader is the was the pupil of Obi-Wan Kenobi, and he now, through the Force, senses that Obi-Wan is here, and it, it, it trails off in a way that you don't understand that he's going to go after Obi-Wan Kenobi. Like, it performs its bare face function. Like, another example I just remembered of another line of dialogue that is just the, the weirdest, in almost the opposite way it's the weirdest fucking piece of dialogue, is when... Uh, Luke has bought C-3PO in R2-D2 and C-3PO is taking the, the nice hot bath he gets and yes. he says I don't even know what planet I'm on and Luke says if there's a bright center to the universe you're on the planet farthest from it's like what what Luke how what you're when did you become a fucking poet like what do you who who would ever structure this like that like no it particularly not Luke Skywalker this like you know, plucky, like, farmhand who wants to go out and see the universe is not going to, like, end his sentence like, like, you are on the planet farthest from, C-3PO, my good lad. Like, it's like, <laughs> what is that fucking line? Like, it feels like that's trying to be Shakespeare. Like, it feels like it's been restructured to fit some sort of meter or something, even though it hasn't. But, like, so it's so clunky, it's so weird, but it tells you what you need to know. And, like, Mark Hamill does enough as an actor to convey the sense of... This is a shit fucking backwater piece of crap that I'm living on. And I want to get the fuck out of here. And if, you know, Quentin Tarantino had written the movie, he would have phrased it like that. Yes. You know, but... And dropped an N-bomb in there really randomly. Yes. And C-3PO would, of course, be played by Samuel L. Jackson. Because this would be... Mace Windu wasn't a factor yet, right? <laughs> I really want that now. I'm tired of these motherfucking stormtroopers on my motherfucking Krillian frigate. You know, that's the first line in the movie in the Tarantino cut. Ah, uh, two. Where's Rust? <laughs> yes. Okay. Anyway. Sorry. Yes. Where are those Death Star plans? <laughs> what? Where are those Death Star plans? Anyways, uh, the the point I'm making about the dialogue is that while it is incredibly clunky, it is extremely functional because that's the the movie is extremely functional in its design in its plot. It is, and it's the same way with the prequels. It's the same reason why the dialogue doesn't bother me in the prequels. This isn't some fucking Aaron Sorkin joint, you know? This isn't a movie that is built 
on the dialogue. It's not about that. Like, if Citizen Kane's dialogue sounded like this fucking dialogue, Citizen Kane would be the most dreadful piece of shit in the world because there are, like, huge scenes in that movie that are people just fucking talking to each other. And they're shot very nicely and everything, but also, if the words that those people were saying were, like, really dull, the scene utterly falls apart. There is not a scene in this movie that, that falls apart because of the dialogue. It's, it's, you you kind of can laugh at it and have fun with it, but at the same time, it conveys everything it needs to convey about this very basic, like, hero's journey style ass fucking myth plot, you know? Yeah, and, and if some of it is just the chemistry of movie making coming together. Yeah. Like, I think if you look at this movie on the page, Princess Leia is the most schizophrenic character in the history of movies because yeah. she is written as a different character in every scene in which she appears. Oh, yeah. I mean, to the degree where she's directed differently, like, she just has a fucking full-on British accent in some scenes that is gone, dead, buried, disappeared by the end of the movie, right? Yeah. And yet, Carrie Fisher is so good, and she has so much energy and presence on screen, she just makes it work. You come out of this movie adoring Princess Leia and being like, I want to see more of that character. She was fucking awesome. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I think if you just read the script, you might be like, who was that? Why was she British for half the movie? Yeah. You know? Because some I of the... I thought I smelled your foul stench when I came on board. When I was yeah. brought on board. The yeah. way she like does the beat. She's like doing it as like Julie Andrews in The Sound of Music yeah. or something. It's, it's crazy. Um, but yeah, so... The other thing, in terms of rough edges, just for fun, I want to point out, my favorite thing to watch in this movie is how... So this was the only one they made where they didn't know James Earl Jones was going to be doing Darth Vader. Yeah. They shot it as just David Prowse doing it. He did the voice on set. He was probably going to have to post-dub it, in part because most dialogue was probably post-dubbed at this point in film history, but also he's in the suit. But he was going to be Darth Vader, right? Yeah. And some of that footage still exists, and you can see it, and it's hilarious. But, like, so he was doing his own thing with it, and then they decided, eh, it doesn't work, he sounds like a weird Irishman, so let's get James Earl Jones in here, and he'll do his thing, and he does it gloriously, he's perfect. But, there are many moments in the movie where what he is doing clearly is not what David Prowse is doing. My favorite one is there's a moment where he's talking to Tarkin, it's a long shot, so he's kind of far off. So, like, I remember on DVDs and, like, VHSs, I never saw this, but on a Blu-ray, when it looks nice, or a bigger TV, you can tell, like, he says a line... And then David Prowse continues on, like, making a gesture with his hands at the end of the line. But he's done talking. <laughs> and there's just, like, five seconds of dead, dead air there. And it's very, very awkward. And there's other moments where it's just, like, the way Jones inflects is not the way Prowse is visually playing the character. But I don't know. I love all those little things, though. Yeah. I think they're fun. Yeah, and it's a lot of those things are some of the things that make this movie feel like it lives in this weird bubble. Yeah. It's like it's like, you know... Mark Hamill and Carrie Fisher and Harrison Ford are all, like, unknown, totally unknown actors, you know, that, like, they've acted in things before, but they're, like, nothing big, nothing that broke big. Like, this was not a movie that was supposed to be this big-ass fucking movie. It was a movie that was, like, in its pitch, rejected by fucking, like, a hundred studios before, like, Fox was like, fine, we'll make your fucking, we'll make your fucking space movie, American Graffiti Guy, fine. Yes. You know, it's, it, so it's, it has that just, like... Sort of like, well, we put it together with kind of like duct tape and somehow it's the best thing in the world's feel to it. Yeah, no, the whole movie is held together with duct tape and prayer. Yeah. And it, it totally works. And out. the power of the force. And the power of the force. I also love, this is also the only movie where you can clearly see through Darth Vader's eyepieces in some cases. <laughs> and see the eyes under there. And it is creepy. Yeah. But it works. Yeah. Let's talk about the characters, Sean. Okay. But the characters in this movie are so fucking good. Yes, yeah. I love every one of them. They're so great. Don't even know where to start, but Luke is probably the best place to start. Yeah, yeah. 
It's interesting because Mark Hamill is not the actor he would become in this movie. Oh, sure. Yeah, of course. But he's still so good. I yeah. love young Mark Hamill in this. He has... You know, I've heard this said about him before. That, like, the thing that makes Mark Hamill work... And the, the reason why Star Wars works with Mark Hamill leading it... Is that he so effortlessly buys into everything around him. Yeah. He holds a prop. He talks to a droid. He, he talks runs to, to an old space wizard. Yeah, he gets in his weird speeder thing... He just feels like he has put himself in that mindset and he is in that world and he is not acting. He is just being that character. And not everyone has that skill of being able to walk into this crazy fantasy land and pretend that they're actually there. I think the prequels are somewhat hit and miss with that, like we've yeah. talked about with some actors maybe don't get that entirely. But like Mark Hamill, you, there's just no gap between him and Luke in this movie. He just is Luke. He is this kid living on this rock in space you know, when, like, half of the first act of this movie is him talking to two fucking droids. Yeah. And he sells it completely. And I just think there is an, an unassuming earnestness to what he does in this that kind of strikes me anew every time I watch it. Because he doesn't look like a movie star, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, like, if you compare him to, like, the heroes of future Star Wars movies, like, you know, Ewan McGregor is a hunk. He looks oh, fucking yeah. handsome. You know, Sexy man. Daisy Ridley is a beautiful woman. John Boyega is a beautiful man. Like, yeah. you know, Adam Driver is weird looking, but he's the villain, you know? Yeah. But, Mark, like, Adam Driver looks like Mark Hamill. Yes. But he's not playing, the, like, the main character hero in the new Star Wars movies, because that's not how we cast movies anymore for, you know... Better and for worse. Yeah. Mostly, maybe. Most, I don't know. Yeah, I would say for I would worse. Say for, for the more shallow. Uh, yeah, there is... And I think part of it is also, like, you, that kind of, like, 70s Hollywood thing of... There was just this sense, I think, of, like, people... Like, a lot of, the, like, characters looked like people. Yeah. And it wasn't like... Like, once you got to the 80s, you know, it's all fucking Stallone and Schwarzenegger. And, it's and like, that's where you start And every actor it. has a personal trainer, and they are ripped, and they're working out 300 days of the year. Yes, which we have now gone, like... The modern film thing is like almost even worse than the, like where it's like even like the funny dudes have to have like eight packs and it's like you know Chris Pratt like once you're off of TV Chris Pratt like you gotta get fucking ripped my man because yep. like you could you could be kind of like like a bit chubby on uh, Parks and Rec once you're out of there you got you're in the big leads you're in Marvel like you have a personal trainer you're like you're secretly doing steroids because all of them are secretly doing steroids because that's the only fucking way they would be able to get that bill like. Yes. That's how it fucking works. Yeah, like, in this, Mark Hamill is this scrawny, little, earnest, plucky farm boy. It's like, that's what he looks like. That's what he was, you know? Like, that's the, he's got that great, like, like the sort of kind of dopey 70s hair and everything. He just, he, like you said, he accepts every single thing that happens to him in this universe, which is particularly impressive when you think about that it was not normable, normal back in 1977 for you to act next to a dude in a giant, like, dog alien suit, you know, no. in, like, half your scenes, or, a, like, a dude in a little, like, trash can and another dude in, like, a weird gold-plated thing with his arms at, like, crooked angles, you know? That was not a common thing because this was before Star Wars came out, and so there were, like, sci-fi movies, but... Not that many, not that many sci-fi fantasy movies like this. You know, like Flash Gordon was an old, old ass thing by this point, and so it it was an uncommon skill set for any actor, particularly for an actor like Mark Hamill. But he just like takes everything in stride. He infuses it with this optimism and this honestness and this hope and this just like need to be like I'm going to go out there. I'm going to prove things. He's got that very like 
Disney princess ass like character thing of like I want to see the world you know like he's got that like he has he might as well break out this song like right when he's seen like looking out at the horizon that's his like I want to leave here song and yes. like want to see the world Moana like whatever like all those movies have that like he has all those character traits and he embodies them so perfectly no he does and yeah, I also think like the fact that they let him just look like Mark Hamill in this movie yeah. and be kind of scruffy and and skinny and have the weird hair and everything is that the physical transformation he goes through in the three movies, like from the kid he is here to look at how Mark Hamill holds himself in like the climactic scenes of Return of the Jedi or something, yeah. that is a fucking character arc that is sold on good writing, good performance, and strong you know, physical performance work as yeah. well. And and I think that's part of it too, because it gives him a... Pl- not that I would say he becomes more glamorous, I guess. He's not like ever becomes a glamorous character. But, he's, but he, he, becomes, he gains a confidence yeah. that like he doesn't necessarily have here. Like he, he has like this need to, to sort of go out there and have adventures, but he doesn't really have the confidence to back that up yet. And character arcs generally work differently now. Because again, we cast exclusively very, very beautiful people. in, And they're very talented, obviously. Yeah. But it means that like... You know, Rey in Star Wars, for instance, like, I think she has wonderful arcs in these new movies and transforms in very interesting ways, but it's not that kind of thing of, like, she starts completely deglamorized and be- can become something else. Yeah. Because that's just not the way we cast and pitch people, especially in terms of physicality. Yeah. You know? Or, like... I don't know, Wolverine went some places in his years with Hugh Jackman, right? And while he is, compared to, like, Logan, very scrawny in the first X-Men movie, there was no point where, like, you know, he's Captain America little, you know, like, no muscles, and then becomes Wolverine, you know? So, like, those arcs are just sold in very different ways today. Um, But, yeah, Mark Hamill's great, and I love that there are just a couple of lines in this. You can hear him in the trash compactor scene when he yells a lot. Yes. Where you can start to hear old Mark Hamill. 100%. I know, because this is obviously the first time I've seen this movie since The Last Jedi. Yeah. And I noticed that in that scene so clearly. Like, oh, my God, it's there. Like, it's old, scruffy, fucking, angry Mark Hamill from from Episode Eight, just, like, wanting to break out and just be this badass, fucking, like, jaded old Jedi guy. Yep. Love Mark Hamill. Yeah. So a wonderful good. human being. Carrie Fisher, as I said, just sticking with the main three. Yeah. She's so good here. I always just... Carrie Fisher had, obviously, the, the most interesting and fascinating career and did so many wonderful things. But I do wish we had more movies on the record of her being a leading lady like this. Yeah. And really, like, taking charge on things. Because she's just such a great screen presence. Yeah. It's particularly when they get her out of the detention center and she sort of just immediately takes control of yeah. the group. And just like, okay, fuck it, we're going to blow up this thing. And we're going to, like, get in there, assholes. Like, let's do this. Like, she's so good when she is able to take charge at that kind of, like, midpoint of the movie. Yeah. And it just completely recolors the dynamic at that point And gives you this fresh injection of energy into the film. Because you kind of don't know who this person is up till that point. Because she's very much playing a role with the people around her, right? Yeah. But it's like, this is who Leia is. And she's fed up with this fucking bullshit. Yeah. You know, it's like she's been waiting to get rescued and it's these assholes. No, it's great. I yeah. love Leia. I love that you could argue she really has to do the most heroic things in this movie. Like, surviving multiple rounds of torture. Watching her entire home planet be blown up and everyone she's ever loved die along yeah. with it. Um 
Console the plucky farm boy after his the old man he kind of knew died. died. Console him after that, you know, basically lead, uh, get the plans back to the rebel base and then help lead this attack and everything. Yeah. No, she's a very heroic character from the word go. Yeah. And uh, as with all of these characters, her best is yet to come. Mm-hmm. But she just comes across so strongly right off the bat. And I think the character who sells that and embodies that most is fucking Han Solo. Yeah. Who is Han Solo the moment he steps on screen... Harrison Ford swaggers into this movie yes. a fully formed movie star, and it is just, it will never fail to amaze me. Just from moment one, he is Harrison fucking Ford. Yeah. The guy who would, you know, steal the 80s from every other actor. And by God, I love Harrison Ford, and I love Harrison Ford in this role. And, you know, Han has. Because I think there are really two great Han Solo movies, this and Empire Strikes Back. Right, yeah. He and doesn't I, have that much to do in, in Jedi. Jedi. And I like his role in Force Awakens a lot, but it's a different reflective kind of thing. But, like, I just love... Like, Empire is his movie in a lot of ways, and he steals that one. But, like, his role in this as the disillusioned guy who comes around to helping his friends, it is cliche in a lot of ways, obviously, but it is just done so well, and Harrison Ford is so fun to watch, and... We were saying this off the air before we started. Poor Alden Ehrenreich, who is starring as Han Solo in the Solo movie. He could give an A-plus performance. Yeah. And it will still not be Harrison Ford. And I feel like a lot of people are going to hold that against him. And I feel bad for the poor guy. Because that is a tough set of shoes to swagger into. Yeah. And swagger is 100% the word. You know, as soon as he's fucking there. just Especially because he holds such a different presence than all the other characters in the movie. Because because he's from a full, completely different movie and genre in some yes. ways. Like, he is, like, you know, like, the dirty cowboy, you know, that's, like, he's he's the he's the bad guy, but, like, but isn't just, like, out there to murder people. Like, he's, he's uh, Tuco in The Good, The Bad. He's the ugly in The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Like, he's not evil. And he's not good. He's ugly. Like, he, he sort of, like, works in that middle space, and he'll fucking just shoot a motherfucker if that guy is after him, and he doesn't really care that much. And, you know, especially if you're... Obviously, the despecialized fucking... We're not going to get into all that. But, you know, that character of this sort of, like, dirty smuggler cowboy guy is just completely from a different movie in some ways. Yeah. But that's the, the magic of this film, is that it just takes all these different elements of sort of mythical fantasy and, and Western and, like, sci-fi and, and sort of space opera fantasy and mushes all of them together in this, like, really unique blend with, like, weird Eastern influences, where the Force comes from and all that. Like, anything else, like, all those influences would totally fall apart. For whatever reason in this movie, they really work. And Han Solo just fucking... Harrison Ford plays that character perfectly. As well, soon as he's leaning on that chair, fucking blasting Greedo in the chest, and then coming in at the end on the Millennium Falcon, just like, woo! You know, like, he just is, he is that character that whole movie. And I think it's also worth noting, like, so it's like, he comes in and he has lived a life, right? Yeah. But also the way this movie introduces characters, because this movie has so much to lay down and introduce, oh, yeah. right? And yet, look at how this movie uses forward momentum in that it never stops its narrative trajectory to introduce someone. It does that so naturally. So, like, Han Solo effectively has two introduction scenes. And I think in a lot of people's memory, they think Greedo is the first scene with Han Solo. Right. Because that is effectively our introduction to who he is as a, as a character, right? Yes. But his first scene is completely without fanfare. Obi-Wan says, you know, Chewbacca here may have found us a pilot. 
and we walk over. Yeah, we see Chewbacca first, you yeah. know. We walk over to the table. Han is there. He tells us about he made the castle run in less than 12 parsecs. That's not what a parsec is, but we'll roll with it, Han. And Obi-Wan, Obi-Wan has a little look on his face like this, this, this douchebag. Like, well, you've never heard of the Millennium Falcon? Yeah. But that's his introduction. So where he's introduced is as a function of what Obi-Wan and Luke are doing on their journey. And then, because Obi-Wan and Luke then have to go get their stuff ready, there is time in the narrative for Han to have this scene set right after that where we have reached enough of a lull that we can have this standalone scene for Han, and then when that's over, we continue moving on. Yeah. It's one of the reasons why, to get into the special edition stuff a little bit, maybe we'll talk the Han shot for stuff in a while. I mean, no. No, we're not, yeah. It's stupid, it's a dumb change, we all know that, whatever. Yes, Yeah. moving on. But anyway, there's the scene after that that is a much more significant addition to the special edition where he meets Jabba the Hutt, right? Yeah. And this scene is interesting, because I actually kind of like the scene. Like, if it were just a deleted scene on the DVD, I'd dig it. And I'd be like, I'm really happy to see that Harrison Ford performance. It's interesting to see what Jabba was in this scene, you know? Uh, I mean, it's been redone where Jabba was originally a human being. Yeah. Um, which creates this, what, what recontextualizes Han's last scene in that scene, where what he said, his last line in that scene, where he says, Jabba, you're a hell of a human being. <laughs> and it's a joke in the cut we have now, but I think he meant it literally in the movie because yeah. he wasn't an alien anyway. But, you know, so that's an interesting little scene. Harrison Ford is really good in it. It's kind of cool to see Jabba here and, like, set up what's going to come later and all that. It also has some really wonka, wonky effects work, like where Han Solo passes behind Jabba. But obviously when they shot it, Jabba didn't have a tail. So he has to step on Jabba's tail and the Java animation is fine, but they have to artificially lift Harrison Ford into the air and bring yeah. him back down. Oh, it does not work. It does not work at all. But anyway, the scene is fine. The movie is so well and meticulously paced, though, that it kills the pacing of that scene in the movie. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. it does the opposite of what I just said. Of It takes a break from the narrative to do something that is just fundamentally detached from this narrative. And, and which it, the Greedo scene yeah. already did. Yeah, exactly. That We already established... Han has debts and like that's the reason why he's looking for money and so it's like that it gives you this insight to like he's a bit of a dirtbag like yeah. you got a sense this guy's probably a dirtbag when he's bragging about his dumb fucking ship but then once you you know you have like a fucking like like mobster game like like debt collector coming at your door that you gun down in the bar yeah, this guy's a fucking piece of shit yeah and there's one other scene where the special edition uh, adds a scene into the movie, and it, it's the exact same effect. It's where Luke meets, meets Biggs at the Rebel base at the yeah, end. Yeah, yeah. I like that scene. If it were an extra on the DVD, again, I'd be like, that was so cool to see. I love seeing Mormon Camel. We get to see Biggs as his friend. That's neat. In the movie, like adding that into the existing cut, it is interrupting the forward momentum narrative flow to slow down and have this purely like expository separate scene with Luke and Biggs. And, you know, that to me is like, people complain about the special edition for the added CGI and stuff. And that pisses me off too. A lot of it is very bad and does not fit. The bigger things are just like, as cuts of this movie, they are just inferior in what they do to the rhythms of these films. Yeah. You know? And I do want to get into this later about how Star Wars has been preserved or more accurately not preserved, which is, I think, one of the most sad and fascinating parts of its legacy. But... If you've only ever seen the special edition, do watch the theatrical cut. Yeah. I, it's it's not just that there's less like CGI bullshit in it. It really is like there's something about the flow of the movie that just works better. Yeah, I, I, I 100% agree. Anyway, back to Han Solo. Though. Yes, Han with, Solo. With, with this new Han Solo movie coming out, uh, Solo, a Star Wars story, it did make me think like the way Han Solo swaggers into this movie and yeah. who he is... 
the man we see in this film, I just fundamentally do not buy that he has had past cinematic adventures. I agree. I buy that he has done some CD shit, and he's seen some shit, probably. But I also think he talks a bigger game than he has. I think a lot of the point of him in this movie is that this is kind of... Whatever he may say, this is kind of his first rodeo. I don't think he's gone undercover on a Empire base before. Oh yeah, I don't think he's risked his life to the degree that happens in this movie. He has he has no friends. Yeah, like he had like he is. I feel like he's like this. He feels like this loser that just yeah. like has had this life of crime. He has this weird f- friend who's a Wookiee named Chewbacca, and yeah. he's got this fucking Millennium Falcon that's kind of run down piece of shit. Because this is the first movie, like the the point is that you bring a character in at a point where their arc is starting for this yeah. kind of thing. Like not with an Obi Wan character because that's an old like sage kind of presence, but with Han Solo. You, you, what, what you expect is that a character like this has probably been pretty static for much of his life, and we're coming to meet him at the inciting events that will change and develop him as a person. Which, yeah. again, that's not how people really live in the real world, but for narrative purposes, that's how you set it up. And again, I guess that's my one big worry more than anything else about this Han Solo movie, is there's probably a lot of fun things you could do with it, but I don't know what story you could tell with Han Solo, like pre-New Hope, that would be both sufficiently cinematic and interesting enough to be its own standalone movie. And Particularly, like, and it be a Star Wars movie. Right. Because it's not going to be this, like, seedy crime drama that's, like, very low stakes and is all about how, like, he can't escape this life of crime or something. You know, right. it's not going to be that. Yeah, if you can do the fun, swashbuckling, you know, Star Wars uh, romantic adventure thing... And also have it not take him too far where I can't believe that guy becomes Harrison Ford in A New Hope. I just don't think you can do those two things at the same time. Yeah. And maybe they've found a way to do it. Totally possible. But I don't know. That would be a really tough assignment, I think. And it's... it's I like, I'm like i going to basically go into Solo just treating it as his own fucking thing. Because yeah. I think if you connect it to the other continuity, that's probably going to hurt it. But like you know, everyone's joked, oh, I want the Lando Calrissian movie. The thing is, Lando would be a much easier movie to make. Yeah. Because when he comes to us in The Empire Strikes Back, we know very little about him. But he also is at a pretty static place as a character because he has achieved a lot of his life goals. Yeah. He runs this city. He he has done this thing recently where he sold out his friend and that's bad. But like a lot of his life has been lived and we don't know a bunch about him before or after. So there is plenty. You can do whatever the hell you want with a Lando movie. There's kind yeah. of no restrictions. Like as it like... Kind of proof to that, Lando is one of the characters that they have in Star Wars Rebels in a couple of episodes. Okay. So it's like they use that character in that show because there's room to use that character. Han Solo does not appear in that show. Like, Princess Leia does not appear in that show. Obviously, Luke doesn't appear in that show. He would be basically a baby at that point. Or he's right. like four years old or something. But yeah, like, Lando is a... You know, he's in like maybe three or four episodes. I'm not saying he's in the, like a bunch. But he appears in that as like one of the few char- like characters from the original trilogy that shows up. Because he has that kind of supporting character element to him, that he has all that room that you can fill in those gaps. Whereas Han doesn't really feel like that. No. Like, ultimately, where you would need your solo prequel story to end, whether that's one movie or they do sequels or something, is it has to end with him being down on his luck, smuggling for fucking Jabba the Hutt... Chewbacca's his only friend and desperate enough to go hang out in a fucking bar in Mos Eisley and wait for a kid and an old wizard to come. Like yeah, He has to be the kind of guy who would abandon his friends for money because that's who he is at the beginning of the movie that he changes at the end of the movie that decides, no, yes. there's something that is more worthwhile than money in this world and it's like standing by these people that I've seen that are noble and fighting for something that is right, right? So if the solo movie ends with him making that same choice, 
It makes no sense. Unless you conk him on the head at the end of the movie and he forgets everything and Chewbacca just carries him back into the Falcon. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I guess you could do that. Yeah. My, my like, fear is too strong a word, but my, my sort of paranoid suspicion uh, about Solo, A Star Wars Story, after having watched this, is do you think that he's going to do the Kessel Run in under 12 parsecs in Solo, A Star Wars Story? I'm pretty sure that's what the movie's about. Is the, it really? The, 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 the plot's about said the Kessel that? Run. Yeah. Oh, fuck, I'm pretty I, sure that's what it is. Why are they making this movie? Why? What? Like it's the adventure where he does the Kessel Run. Fucking fuck off, Hollywood. (laughs) Why? Like, why does it have to, like, the one fucking throwaway line? Can I tell you the worst part? Yeah. In in an early... This might not be a part of the movie anymore, especially considering how many things it went through in production. There was one of their press releases where they, like, laid out the story of the movie. They didn't say the Kessel Run thing, but they did say, and you'll you'll, you'll come to learn why he came to be known... By the name Han Solo. As if it's like a title that was bestowed upon him and not his birth name. As They started calling him Han Solo as opposed to Han Solo. But some people still call him Han. It's it's a weird thing. Alright. Anyway, Harrison Ford is wonderful. We will have much more to say about him next time. Yes. And also, I'm very curious to see Solo Star's story. I'm (laughs) super curious. Yeah. Anyway. What that movie is. Alright. Obi-Wan. Yes. Well, okay. First, Chewie. Chewie's awesome. We love Chewie. Chewie should have gotten a medal too. That's bullshit. Yes. I guess the medal is for both of them, but I don't know. I mean, he's just the first mate. You know, does yeah. the first mate get a medal? I don't fucking C three PO R two D two doesn't get a fucking like R two D two doesn't even get a purple heart or something. Like he got R2- shot in the should... line of fucking duty. Okay, he he took a bullet for Luke. R two doesn't get a purple heart, and that ceremony is oddly celebratory considering how many people die on that mission. Like it no, you like, gotta take your W's, man. You gotta take it when you get one. Take your W, but like I feel like there should be pictures of like you know red five on the wall or something. That's in the other room. Okay. That's where like all the grieving widows are, and like yeah, this like this dark on like monument, and then like and then the room after that is where it's like this massive like fucking Vietnam style plaque with all the names of like the billion people that lived on Alderaan. It would be a different movie if the movie ended with Luke walking out of the ceremony hall and going by the the Vietnam style memorial and like putting his hand on the names and hanging his head. Yeah, and it, it like just, fades like, slowly to black. Like, yeah. Ben Kenobi or something. Yeah. yeah. It fades. That'd be very different. Speaking of Ben Kenobi, though. Yes. This is the movie that makes it where I usually think of him as Ben Kenobi first. Yeah. Because of this original Star Wars. Alec Guinness is wonderful. We said in the prequels that Ewan McGregor has maybe replaced him as just like the first thing we think of because he has so much more time in the role. Yeah. But Alec Guinness is so good. Yes. He, he is given a, a the difficult mentor role of having to sit down and tell this, this plucky farm boy everything about... History and and religion and philosophy is like here we go. Okay, your your uncle has been shielding you from all this stuff, kid. I'm gonna get real with you for a second. Okay, you're getting penetrated right now. <laughs> That's what he says. I'm I'm paraphrasing, of course, but <laughs> no, I I just it's a magical performance. It's a wonderful character, and I think I made a note of this because it blew me away. Luke Skywalker is introduced 17 minutes into the movie, which is pretty late, deep into the first act, to introduce your main character. Yeah. But he's introduced 17 minutes into the movie. He and Obi-Wan have their final conversation. This is not where Ben dies, but their final moment together at the one hour and ten minute mark. Yeah, this is a two hour movie. Yeah. They have had less than an hour of screen time together, and yet that relationship is forged in just such strong, enduring fashion in that small amount of time they have. I think it is... 
exemplary of how economical this movie is with its time, with what it has, in that it really does use every inch of footage it has on screen to build out this world. And I think the Obi-Wan Luke thing is so representative of that because it like it echoes through the rest of the whole fucking series. Yeah. And it's it's what 40 minutes of time they have together if that and just a couple of scenes and yet you really buy it that they have forged this really powerful mentor student bond when Obi-Wan leaves at the at that moment in the film and goes off on his solo journey and then at the end that Luke would be truly devastated when this guy is killed, you know, more so than he shows for the people who raised him, you know. Yeah. It it works. It is sold so well. And you can do the jokes about, like, you know, Leia lost her whole planet. Why does she have to console this kid? But in, like, the, the ongoing emotional arc of the movie... Yes, we didn't meet any of the no. billion people on Alderaan. They're just yes. charred corpses flitting through space. Who cares? <laughs> yes. It's, there's not a scene in the Millennium Falcon where one of the bodies hits the windshield. Yeah. And they have to, <laughs> they have to confront no. It's a very different movie. Very different movie. But, yes, uh, it's all so well done. Yeah. Yeah, I almost didn't even know what else to say about it. It's like, it is just, you know, Alec Guinness is one of the great character actors of all time. He delivers a hell of a Total coup for the movie for that they got him. Yeah. Because it's hard to sell this stuff. And speaking to hard hard to sell this stuff, Sean, I think you want to talk about Mr. Peter Cushing. God, he's so good in this movie, man. It's just... Because 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 I think we were talking before the the podcast started that you have so you have Peter Cushing you have Alec Guinness both brilliant amazing like classic British character actors with one key difference between the two of them though is that Alec Guinness is in a bunch of like you know like really respected artsy ass fucking movies you know and Peter Cushing well Peter Cushing has been in some of those Peter Cushing is also Doctor Who in like the two Doctor Weird Doctor Who movies from the 60s he's in like all the Hammer Horror movies and so he is, is he Frankenstein yes he's Dr. Frankenstein okay. yeah he's Dr. Frankenstein I forget who does he play in Dracula I think is he Van Helsing in Dracula maybe oh that sounds right but yeah, I don't but know anyways but yeah he's in all those movies um and he's just he knows how to fucking be this cult-ass character, you know? He can play in these weird fucking, like, kind of small underground cultish movies of, of the late 60s and, and the 70s. And so he has all that experience. It's basically like Peter Cushing in this movie is Christopher Lee in Episode 2, Episode 3. He is, absolutely. He fucking knows, and in the sense that, like, also Christopher Lee was in all those movies, so they all they, so they work together. Like, they were they were friends in real life. Exactly, yes. And so, but they have that exact same mentality of, while Peter Cushing, unfortunately, to, you know... The denigration of us all never has the opportunity to pretend to shoot lightning out of his hands in this film. If the, he had to, he could have sold the fuck out of it because he's Peter Cushing and he can do that shit. I mean, I think Peter Cushing, Grand Moff Tarkin is the perfect role for him. I can pretty easily imagine the alternate universe where he wound up playing the Emperor. Oh, God, Like, yeah. he yeah. would have been great at that. I think we got the right casting for the right roles, but it would not be... It would still be very good with him as the Emperor. He is... No, he's amazing, and I agree with you that he just has the bona fides to sell all that. Genuine question. Yeah. Just throw this out there. Uh-huh. In the movie Star Wars, yes. before any sequel, before any special edition, before any of that, just this movie on an island, who's the better villain? Is it Tarkin or Darth Vader? Fuck. That's, that's legitimately a hard question. And that's the point. Yeah. Just take all... Obviously, in the overall pop culture canon, Darth Vader is about as good as it gets. Yeah. But, but like... And obviously, like, a lot of it is his aesthetic impact and all of that, which he has in this movie. But Darth Vader's not... 
Darth Vader until episode five when he's manipulating everybody and like Darth Vader is not Darth Vader until the door opens on Cloud City and he's sitting there at like the head of the table yes. and, and Han Solo shits his pants and shoots his gun at him. Darth Vader just fucking deflects the bullet with his hand, which is something that nobody ever does in those movies again. Uh, but yeah, like that's that's when Darth Vader is Darth motherfucking Vader. In this movie. He's still really cool. He still chokes that 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 annoying British dude out with his mind, but he also says dopey shit like like do not be too proud of this technological terror you have constructed. You know, he's also sort of pitched as the number two guy here. Yeah, he he's, is. He's the he's the bruiser yeah. of the group. Yeah, yeah, he's the attack dog. He is like the James Bond lackey villain, just done really really well. Yeah, right? Tarkin is the motherfucker who like ties you up to the slab and like points a laser yeah. at your dick and makes it slowly like go up. <laughs> right, like that's the that's who he is as a Bond villain. I think that's who he is. At his heart, truly. Yeah. But like, watch the scenes where Tarkin confronts, you know, Princess Leia, uh-huh. especially the scene where he blows up Alderaan. Just the casual, bureaucratic evil that he oozes in that scene of like, he's gonna blow up Alderaan because he's here and he can, and he already filled out the paperwork. So why not? Yeah, like yeah, it's great. He just has that great moment where where Leia like finally says like they're on Dantooine, they're on Dantooine, and of course she is still lying. But then Tarkin's just like, oh, that's great, but it's too remote a planet to make a good demonstration. So we're going to blow up all the run anyway. You may fire when ready. You may yeah. fire when ready. Yeah. One of my favorite line readings in any Star Wars film. Like honestly. Everybody needs to pay more respects to Grand Moff Tarkin as one of the great Star Wars villains. Because obviously the Emperor and Darth Vader and now Kylo Ren are all much more like flashy villains. They are larger than life figures. But I think Tarkin has one of the best presences in any Star Wars movie. Absolutely. And it's part of why it was such an affront unto God... To recreate him as bad CGI in Rogue One, that fucking movie. I still feel like we need to talk about that more. That is yeah. still one of the most immoral things that has ever happened in a Hollywood movie. And I, I we, we let that slide, and we should not have let that slide I as mean, a society. We, okay, yeah, society, like, we yeah. did not. Like, no. we had a fucking conversation about it. I agree. The, like, the larger the film community... I feel like did not there are a lot of take people, enough umbrage at that shit. There are a lot of people that need to be in movie jail right now for yes, this. Yeah. Not real jail. It's not, you know, that kind of thing. But, you know, movie jail. Yeah, they should pay us money personally. Like, that's, you know, it should be that thing where you get, like, a little, like, letter in the mail that's, like, class action lawsuit because, like, the floss you used, like, hurt somebody once so you get a penny. Like, yeah. it should be that of, like, you enjoyed Peter Cushing's performance as Grand Moff Tarkin in Star Wars and they bastardized it in Rogue One so you get, like, a buck. Yes. Like, like, that should happen. No, Peter Cushing is great and... I like some of the little side characters we get in 5 and 6, but I, I do, like, I kind of wish he was had, like, maybe survived the Death Star, and there was just mm. someone kind of like him there. I guess he's redundant by Episode 6, because you have the Emperor, but, and in Episode 5, Darth Vader has very much stepped up into that role, but uh, you do kind of, I do kind of miss him when he's gone, because yeah. I just, he's such a great character. Yeah, he is, like, the example you get of, like, the Imperial middleman that actually is, like, competent. Yes. You know, like, everyone else, like, other than him in this movie, and then what you get afterwards with like veers and all like the like the rotating cast of random British dudes that that Darth Vader chokes out in the, yeah. the succeeding movies, none of them have the competence that Grand Moff Tarkin has. And like the one flaw of Grand Moff Tarkin is like that hubris he has that he decides not to leave, even though the one little guy comes up and is like, I mean, we analyze their attack plan and like there's a ch- it's small, 
there is a chance that one missile might destroy our entire moon-sized space station. And he's just like, fuck off, that's not going to happen. I do hear, it is one of my other favorite Tarkin moments, is when he just says, you know, like, leave, when we're so close to victory, I think not. Like, he's just, he's like offended yeah. by the suggestion. It's, it is extremely British. Like, that's yeah. the reason why the Imperials have to be British, is that they wrote that scene, and it's like, you can't do this without a British accent. I it's, wouldn't buy it. I just wouldn't buy it. It's really easy to imagine Grand Moff Tarkin on the Serengeti talking about savages while shooting a cheetah. Yes, exactly, <laughs> yes. It's like the height of colonialism. Yes. yes. 100%. It's like, those savages can't, can't take our line. Leave in our moment of triumph? Never! Speaking <laughs> of great imperial bureaucracy, one of my favorite things about the original Star Wars that never really comes back I love the stormtroopers in this movie so goddamn much. They're just a bunch of like regular hapless dudes going about a very boring day job. Like there's this scene when Obi-Wan is shutting down the tractor beam and there's these two, two, two stormtroopers in the, in the like back of the shot and they're just making small talk and this is, hey, did you see the new K16? Yeah, I can't believe that. And they just make small talk about like some fucking gun or something on the ship. And then Obi-Wan, like, escapes. And I, like, it's, but it's honestly one of the things that makes it all feel so real is that, right, they're not robots. They're just dudes wearing goofy outfits who probably didn't really choose to do this line of work. And they're just hanging out, doing very boring jobs. And, you know, if we went to their quarters, some of them are probably playing cards. Yeah. You know, I think it's also that scene, there's just a good little exchange. It's like, hey, man, what the heck is going on? I don't know. It's probably another drill. It's like, I love I, that part. That's great. Yeah, just like the little radio noises. It's the thing that if you you play the Jedi Knight Two Jedi Outcast video game, they like take a cue from this movie of one of the the great little joys of that game is sneaking around in like like not just diving immediately into a combat encounter, just like standing around and being like. What the fuck are these idiots talking about? It's like, it's that shit of like, man, that new speeder on the market looks really good. It's like, I don't know. It looks a bit overpriced to me. It's like, ah, I've, I've, I've been saving up. It's just like, like normal, weird, like, like daytime chat by like the working Joes and on the, the fucking Death Star, you know? Yes. All right. Uh, last character we really need to talk about is Darth Vader. Mm-hmm. We've talked around the edges about him. As we said, Darth Vader in this movie is not the Darth Vader we would come to know. Like, yeah. I don't think he has quite the same physical presence. They do not use him in the same kind of heavily iconographic fashion. There's even little things about the lore. Like, I love that Ben, when he meets Darth Vader for the lightsaber duel, keeps calling him Darth. <laughs> which, obviously, if, if you know all the rest of Star Wars, the Darth is like the title and then Vader is the name. Yeah. And it, like, played now, it sounds like Ben is kind of mocking him. Like, hey, Darth. You know, like, just what's cool. up, Darth? <laughs> That's kind of think he's so cool. But, of course, at the time, I think the idea is that, no, his name is just Darth Vader. Yeah. You know, his father yes. was, was Jimmy Vader. <laughs> and he's Darth Vader. You know? <laughs> Yes, it was, yeah. it was Jimmy Vader and, and his good son Darth, named after his great-grandfather. Yes, yeah. so he's Darth Vader II. But yes, um, so there's little things like that, and yet, the character works so well. David Prowse had a kind of a weird voice on set, but he does a great job in the suit. Yep. And James Earl Jones is James Earl Jones, and he is one... He and John Williams are like the two things that were rock-solid in Star Wars from the moment they appeared, and yeah. never really changed. 100%, yeah. It, it is. It is... 
even though he has some very silly lines he has to say, but when he does get like he gets a couple of those one-liners where you can really see it and like it like they up their Darth Vader dialogue game substantially in episode 5, but it is when he gets to say stuff like I find your lack of faith disturbing. It's like, okay, yes, this is Darth this is Darth Vader. He's getting there. And it's just one of the fun things about this movie going back and watching it is before anything about Star Wars was sort of homogenized yeah. or have kind of been settled where they're still kind of feeling around and experimenting with the characters but Darth Vader's just one of those things where you can tell they they hit gold with this guy and a lot of it is also Ben Burt whose name we have not said enough yet uh-huh. on this podcast because the sound effects are amazing and the the Darth Vader breathing which is it's a scuba tank like played backwards like, under... Yeah, it's like a microphone stuck inside of, like, a scuba breathing mask. Yeah. yeah. It's something like that. I mean, it's one of the most iconic sound effects of all time for a reason, and you combine that, the suit, the, you know, the physical costume, the physicality, and James Earl Jones's silky, beautiful voice. Yeah. You know, the haunting, evil voice in this movie, although it's not, you know, he, it doesn't, it's not that far from Mufasa, you know. Uh-huh. He can He can do that on a dime. But yes, uh... It's amazing. He's a great character. Yeah, it's so good. And particularly, I think the scene... And I actually just kind of want to watch talk about this scene as a whole because it is maybe the best scene in this whole movie is the Imperials all sitting around the table and Grand Moff Tarkin comes in with Darth Vader and that's the scene where Darth Vader uses Force Choke for the first time. It is also the, like... We read from it earlier. Yes, yes. We read from it earlier. Like, at the end of that scene is when you get the I find your lack of faith disturbing... And that is, in this movie, like, the first time you see anything, like, the, the Force, like, physically manipulates something. You get a little bit of mind trick stuff. You get a sense of, like, uh, or feelings. They reach out to the galaxy. And this is where it's like, no, you can just murder people with this thing. It's, and, and, and it's one of those things of where I like to imagine the the idiot fucking imperial dude who's like getting all up invaders grill and like being like oh shut up you idiot like you and your dumb sorcerer's ways like you're you're the last remnant vestige of this this ancient religion and it's like how did did you not know that this he can literally kill you with his mind like i get i get that you're like kind of like He's a weird dude. Obviously, he's an eight-foot guy that dresses all in black and, like, goes everywhere. It's like, he doesn't have to do that. Do you see how fucking advanced his technology is? He's making that noise on purpose because he thinks it's cool. He's fucking weird. But he can kill you with his fucking mind. How do you not know that? How have you not heard that at the fucking water cooler like with all these other dudes, because I get the sense that most of the other people in that room had a basic understanding that if you talk up to Darth Vader, he's going to just kill you with his goddamn mind. Uh, I, I just headcanon. Let's headcanon this guy. I think he's one of those, like, you know how in some military scenarios, like, the general's son gets risen through the ranks okay, because he's yes. like a family hire? I think that's who that guy is. Like, he is some admiral's kid who, like, never really had to go through the academy and do that well, and he gets... Promoted up and he's like, fuck you, robot dude. I'm the son of blah, blah, blah. And then he gets force choked and goes and probably quits the army the next day. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, it's great. And, you know, for those who complained that The Last Jedi was like too self-aware joking here, remember that by the very next movie, there would be a running gag about Vader force choking so many people they're running out of like leaders. Yes. So like Star Wars gets self-referential. Right off the bat. Sure, Just yeah. Second movie. We're going, we're at the, we're off to the races with that. But yes, we love Darth Vader. But let's talk about the true star of this movie, Sean. Okay. Man named John Williams. Oh, yes. Yeah. 
I've been kind of waiting to gush on this score. Because we gushed on all the other scores, one, two, three. Yes. I and think we'll continue to yes. gush on the future scores from this point as well. Yeah. I think the score for Star Wars, A New Hope, is not just the best score for a Star Wars movie. It's not just the best score John Williams has ever written. I think it is very possibly the best score ever composed for an American movie. At the very least, a Hollywood big, you know, blockbuster mainstream movie. Uh, certainly, if you define it the blockbuster from like '77 to now, oh, yeah. I think it's far and away the best. I think what John Williams did here is transcendent in ways that are just inexplicable when you look at them now. Strip the music out of this movie. And this movie kind of looks and moves and feels awkward in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Again, I think the edit is very advanced for what they had to work with in terms of all this weird, awkward footage they had, you know? And I think there are scenes definitely like the trench run at the end, which actually plays without music for a lot of it. And it's, it's well done enough that you don't need it. But there are also parts where, like, look at the first, like, 20 minutes of this movie, you know, until we get to Luke, and how much John Williams has to do to kind of combine all of this, give it this big operatic setting in the music, this foundation against which all these crazy things are happening, how much the music in its scope and scale, but also skillfulness and precision in how it you know, traces emotions and atmosphere and things, it creates this unified atmosphere against which you can just immediately buy into all these crazy things. I mean, our point of entry characters in the Star Wars are two droids. Yeah. And I think it's something we forget because no other movie in its right mind would open that way. Uh -huh. And part of why it can open that way is I think those droids are very well executed. And Anthony Daniels and Kenny Baker are great in this movie. Anthony Daniels, he, he kills it from the word go. Yes. I love, I love C-3PO. We're doomed. He's so good. But also John Williams, you know, one of the things you could say is he lends it legitimacy you know, mm -hmm. Star Wars is not a complete original. It is obviously working. It's kind of like a Tarantino sort of style thing of its day. And that George Lucas loved Flash Gordon serials. And he loved these kind of old style, you know, like B-movie things that you would get in theaters where you would go, again, the serial kind of thing. You'd watch 30 minutes of your Superman serial. And the yeah. next week you'd go see the next one or Zorro or, again, Flash Gordon or any of the sci-fi ones. And he wanted to kind of do something like that. But what John Williams does is he gives it this, you know, tremendous... Uh, as I said, authenticity or legitimacy to it because he scores it like you would score the most, you know, interesting, complex, deep, you know, adult thing in the world while also having fun with it. Yeah. And brings that skill to bear on it. And I'm not saying that skill isn't present in other elements of the movie. It obviously is. But I think John Williams really is the secret sauce that ties this all together. And you look at a moment like the binary sunset scene which is probably the most iconic shot in this movie. It is certainly the most iconic piece of Star Wars music. It's effectively Luke's theme and has effectively become the theme of Star Wars, yeah. right? And it's four or five shots. It is Luke walks up to that little hill. He stands on it. He looks out. We see the two sons. He looks back. He hangs his head. It's about 40 seconds of music. No dialogue. I think it is one of the most perfect marriages of visual and audio, specifically music, that I have ever seen in a movie, that will ever be seen in a movie. It's hard to explain. I would love for one of these to bring uh, Thomas, my brother, on here to talk more specifically about what technically John Williams does that is better than just about anyone else. But I really do think there is no replacement for John Williams. Yeah. There is no one who can do what he does with a tenth of what he brings to it. And I think Star Wars is the ultimate testament to that. And I, I think I asked this question in brief last time we did a Star Wars episode. 
But I just think of it more and more every day, especially as we go into the classic stuff now. <clears throat> I don't know if you can do Star Wars without John Williams. At least on screen in this mode. Mm-hmm. I think if you really, really changed your thoughts about what Star Wars were, you found a new aesthetic, you went to a very different time period, you switched some of the kinds of stories we were telling, then maybe we can do something without John Williams. But I think the score for Rogue One by Michael Giacchino, who's a great composer, is terrible. And it's terrible in yeah. part because he's having to do John Williams. And he can't. He just can't. It's like if you sat down a great painter and asked him to go do a Picasso. It's like, well, no, right. you can't do a Picasso. You're not Picasso. You're not John Williams. You can't do it. And Star Wars is John Williams. And John Williams' music in a lot of ways is Star Wars. And I think they are inextricably linked. And one of the things I specifically love about the score for A New Hope is the way it's recorded. Mm-hmm. Like, if you've ever listened to the soundtrack, or if you just put this movie on with, like, headphones so you can hear it a little closer, is, you know, a lot of film scores today, uh, if they're composed with a live orchestra, or recorded with a live orchestra, like, we have the science of it so well down, you're not going to hear any noise from the recording studio. It's going to be very polished. It's almost going to sound like really good samples at a certain point, because it's so polished. This is the London Symphony Orchestra. You can tell it's probably just in a music hall somewhere. Mm-hmm. They're recording it. You can hear little sounds in the background. You can hear that the acoustics are probably not perfect in terms of how they have it all arranged. It sounds like a group of musicians playing this movie live in the room with you. And I think, honestly, John Williams is good about that in most of his scores over the course of his career when he makes them this big. But even now on the new ones, like I just think there's something about the recording technology is good enough and we don't quite do it that way. Like it's 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 so polished that you lose a little bit of that just immediacy and authenticity to it. Um, I I love the music for this movie so incredibly much. It is amazing. You think about how many themes he lays down here that are ludicrously iconic, and this one doesn't even have the Imperial March. Yeah, you know we haven't even gotten there yet. Uh, I think it is one of the finest hours of the. Uh, perhaps the finest composer who's ever worked in this medium, certainly one of the two or three finest, and, uh, you know, don't want to take it for granted. Yeah, no, 100%. And he knew, like, the kind of score he had to do for a movie like this. It's just, like, impressive, because it's not there were very many movies like this. Um, but it is, like, what Star Wars needs is big... Like that kind of big symphonic orchestra that is like a score that is very theme based, that has very strong iconic melodies that communicate the emotions of the scene that are big emotions because it's like, you know, you need Luke to have this big swelling emotion in that scene where he stares out over the dunes and sees the the two sons. But it's not the kind of scene where you can, you know, have like a melodramatic acting style and have Luke like fall to his knees and like, why can't I get out there? <laughs> ah, you know, it's not it, like it's operatic, but it's not an opera, right? Yeah. You, you can't do well, that. Well, you said that scene is where he would do his musical number. He kind of does. It's just yeah. John Williams is doing it and it's 40 seconds. Exactly. Like that, that music communicates the emotion of that scene in a way that like it's the kind of scene that like you can't really communicate it well without that music like you would have to change the style of the movie and the tone and everything so much to try to communicate a scene the the emotion is seen like that without relying heavily on the music and so i think george lucas got very fucking lucky yes that john williams wanted to do the score for this because this would be post jaws right so it's like he'd done jaws from with spielberg well and that's why he wanted him i mean spielberg recommended him because of jaws and and everyone knew jaws and Jaws is an amazing film score and, yeah. and super key to that movie. It's also very unlike Star Wars. Uh-huh. You know? Yeah. 
so it's hard. I don't think you could look at Jaws and then imagine what that guy's Star Wars music sounds like if you've only heard Jaws. Yeah, and so yeah, but John Williams just came to this movie and knew that we have to have these big recognizable themes and focus on the themes, focus on the leitmotifs, like focus on those elements that I like are have kind of gone out of favor again in movie scoring, like over the past twenty years or so. Like it felt like in the John Williams mode, people were kind of into that for a while. Before him, they weren't really into the, that much. And, but it is a really effective way of, of scoring these kinds of big, epic stories. Well, because it's a very maximalistic scoring style. Yeah. Like, he does not leave in his music a lot of room for you to, like, reinterpret the emotions of a scene, you know? Yeah. Uh, and also, these are movies that are largely, like, kind of scored through. There are very few moments in Star Wars movies that do not have score playing over them. Yeah. And here's the thing. That is a technique for film scoring that has a very, very high skill floor. Yeah, I think you have uh-huh. to be very, very good to be able to pull that kind of thing off. You also have to be the right person for the right material. Like there are a million things that have to go right, and you know, I think pretty much any composer you go see, uh, any Hollywood movie you go see, the person who's got the music credit is probably an insanely talented person. Oh yeah, but I also think a lot of the time these days you're not going to remember their work, and you're not going to think the work makes all that much of an impact because you know. We're still living kind of in a John Williams world. Um, obviously, there have been some breaks, and I agree that a lot of this is, has fallen out of style in some areas. Like Hans Zimmer has kind of rewired, uh, I think, our brains on a lot of this over the last decade or two, and that's good. He's done. He's made it his own yeah. thing for those kind of big movies. Um, but at the same time, again, I just think one, the movie has to be particularly good for that kind of thing to work. Like Star Wars. That's why I want to, again, when people just dismiss the prequels out of hand, but also say, like, but the Williams music is good. Well, the Williams music doesn't exist in a bubble. Uh-huh. He yeah. can't write that if there's nothing there. I truly believe that. Because I have seen some cases where I think a terrible movie will have a good score, but I think it is a really super rare thing where you will have that actual genuine disconnect. I've seen good movies with bad scores. Oh, yes. Yeah. The other way around, I think, is a tough thing. Because I think there has to be something there, not just for the composer to write, but for the music to latch onto and work in tandem with. Because a film score does not just exist in a vacuum, it exists in this weird space where it's that in tandem with the images and what is created in your mind and heart by seeing those things together combined. Yeah, and the story that that the film is trying to tell. Yes. Um, And John Williams is just amazingly expertly good at that. Not just in the big moments of themes and leitmotifs and all that, but just in random moments where he's got to, you know, play under the action. Mm-hmm. You know, um, the Despecialized Edition has this, a score-only track you can select from the audio options. Yeah. And uh, that was a big thing because The Last Jedi had that. And I praise that because it's a really cool option. Do it for this, too. And just pick a scene that you know is not, like, built on a big light motif. Like, not the binary sunset scene. Like, one of the scenes on the Death Star where they're running around fighting, you know? And just listen to how well he just has the music kind of playing its part in the scene. He's really good at finding the energy of a scene and matching it. And, again... It's it's kind of weird that the Williams-esque thing has become a mode in film scoring unto itself. Because, again, some other people are very good at doing that kind of thing. But it is what he does with it is so unique unto him, no one else can quite do it. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, it is just... It, it's He's crazy talented. And, again, I just... I can't think of Star Wars separate from John Williams. It's really hard for me. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and we're going to see with uh, with the Solo movie. Because that's being scored by John Powell, who I think in the How to Train Your Dragon movies, uh, 
came about as close as a person possibly can to doing the Williams-esque thing beautifully, perfectly right in a completely different setting. Those are, I think he's extraordinarily talented. But again, you're, you're kind of giving him the Michael Cicchino task of it's, it's an original trilogy era movie. It yeah, looks like yeah. the original trilogy. It's probably going to be edited like the original trilogy. It's got characters from the original trilogy. But you're not John Williams. Go! Yeah. It's like, although he does have this fantastic base to work off of musically sure. of the Connect Star Wars Han Solo oh. song, I'm Han Solo. So yes. if that song is not in that movie, that movie gets an F, like, zero out of five stars or whatever. It's, I mean, um, I have it in my mind. The way you end that movie is on a cool montage of, like, of like the, 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 the montage is, like, the first verse going into, like, yeah. building up. And it's all the characters, like, where they've ended up at the end of the film. And it ends with Han and Chewie in the seat of the Millennium Falcon and kind of high-fiving. And as they go into hyperspace and it cuts to directed by Ron Howard, it's, I'm so low, I'm Han yep. so low. That's what you do. No, wait, and then what you need to do is you need to do the thing that was kind of popular in like the late 90s and early 2000s with kids movies where it's like it goes to credits and then it keeps on cutting back to the movie for like a weird little <laughs> one-off gag. You yeah. remember that like bizarre trend for a little bit there that was terrible and didn't make any sense. I don't know why they did it. Do that with that. With that. Or, or yeah. a, a separate but related twin trend would be then to have... Han Solo and the rest of the cast dance to the song like over the, end, the credits. No, no, no. Like the end of Shrek, where before the credits you just have a big dance party. Okay, yes. That's what you do. Okay, yes. You can do that as well. There yes. are a lot of options. And if you want, Donald Glover can fucking sing. That's, That's all I'm true. saying. He could cover that for you. Yes, he could cover it for you. At the very least, he needs to get like his own like big verse in the middle of the song. He Absolutely. He, he could have a rap verse. That's yeah. popular now. Just break in with a rap verse. Yes. Yes. In fact, I'm pretty sure that in the game it cuts like like you're like like Han, like Lando is a part of like it goes over to Lando and he's also well, dancing is, with like Lobot. It is based on a that's a parody of a real song. Yes, I know. Yeah, which I know. is a, like an actual R and B song. So yeah. Yes. But anyway, um, all right. So well, got a check there. Yeah. yeah. Okay. John yeah. Williams, we love him. Ben Burt, also one of the stars of this movie. Yes. The he, lightsaber sound, the Darth Vader sound, the, the speeders, the speeders, the the, the lasers. F- the, the the plane the planes the ships yes. the Millennium Falcon everything just the Chewbacca built a sonic world yep the R two D two yeah just you just think about like not all of Star Wars is there in A New Hope but how much of Star Wars is there in one movie is mind boggling yeah because it's also it's when you think about the fucking sound design shit that needs to go into this movie there's so much because it is the guns, it is the swords, it is the spaceships, but it is also Chewbacca and R2-D2 and, and the way that C-3PO moves and the Jawas and the Tusken Raiders and all the weird-ass dudes in the fucking, in the cantina and you have to have, like, you know, this weird Biff guy, like, like, talking. You have to do all that shit. Yeah. You have, like, all the weird noises that Greedo makes. It's, there's so much that goes <clears throat> into this fucking movie in terms of the sound design. Let's talk a little bit about the special edition. Okay. And what I want to get into here is not so much relitigating what was changed, what do we like, what do I don't I don't care. Yeah. Like yeah. here's it's my tired. thoughts. I don't mind the special editions for four and five. I'll watch those. I prefer the theatrical cuts, but I'll watch them. They're fine. I don't like the one for six because I think it I actually like the new ending, but I think other than that it bastardizes that film. That's the only one that angers me mm-hmm. is Return of the Jedi because it it does active things to hurt that movie. Like Dubbing in Darth Vader going, no, over the, yeah, the I've best never seen that version of the movie. That was very, the Blu-ray, very bad. That was the Blu-ray yeah. special edition. Very bad. But so Return of the Jedi has been the most hurt. So there's that one. That irks me. 
But I guess here's the bigger issue with this. I don't mind filmmakers changing their movies. That's fine. You add yeah. some stuff to it. It's, sure. it's an old, old practice at this point. But what you do is you preserve the original version. And this is the thing that boggles the mind to me about Star Wars. Is that Star Wars, A New Hope, whatever you want to call it, is one of the most important and influential movies in the history of the medium called film. And it is one of the most poorly preserved movies of that scale in the history called film. Short of being lost. Like, it is available. You can buy it. Um, the most current masters are not very good. You know, I watched the Blu-ray again last night. It's fine. It is not up to par with most uh, Blu-rays of films of that era uh, or vintage I have seen. Um, you know, the last restoration of this was done in 2004 for the DVDs. And the Blu-ray is that DVD master that was done in 2K, put on a Blu-ray. You know, with some little changes to color timing and stuff. Mm -hmm. Um the theatrical version has never been made commercially available since the advent of DVD, except for that one bonus edition thing where it was presented as a direct rip of the Laserdisc transfer yeah. in non-anamorphic widescreen. Um, it has largely fallen to fans to reconstruct this movie out of bits and pieces that we have so that it is preserved for future generations. Um, it, is, it has, since 1997, never been presented commercially in theaters. Um, it does not get theatrical re-releases. And this is true of the, the sequels as well, episodes five and six. Yeah. And it is, if you want to just go easily find by study, you know, the movie that came out in 1977 and had an irrevocable change impact on the medium called film, it is impossible to do that. Yeah. And that is, just put it in perspective. Like, take out that all the debates about the special edition, what changes and all that... If that were, if that happened to Citizen Kane, if they added, if they, if they colorized Citizen Kane and you could not find the black and white version of it, that would be one of the greatest heresies in film history. Yeah. And something similar has happened to Star Wars. It is bizarre when you think about it that this movie has not been preserved the way other movies have. Close Encounters of the Third Kind came out the same year. It is a just as good, maybe even a better movie. I think Close Encounters is one of Spielberg's best. It's one of the best movies ever made. But, you know, obviously also a very similarly important movie, but not to the degree of Star Wars. Yeah. It did not change the industry the way Star Wars did. But it's a beloved film. It has had, since the advent of Blu-ray, not DVD, Blu-ray, two complete special edition releases that had two complete new restorations. The first in 2K, the second in 4K. It was re-released to theaters last year for a two-week engagement. You could just go see it like any other movie. Um... And the Blu-ray, both times they have done that full restoration, all three versions of the movie that Spielberg cut are on there, they are preserved, they are selectable, and it has dozens and dozens of hours of very candid bonus features, and you can go buy it right now on Amazon for $10. Mm -hmm. That's Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I think Close Encounters of the Third Kind is maybe an even better movie. It is not as important a movie to the history of cinema as Star Wars. It is weird that you cannot do that with Star Wars. Yeah. And that is my issue you can talk, you know, or am I being a purist? Is it... Uh, but, but, but that's not the point. The point is the original version of this movie should be available. I also think that Disney is being is committing commercial harakiri by not doing that because you would make money up the wazoo finding for, an for excuse to do... For something that wouldn't be that, like, much effort, probably no, speaking. No, no. Um, or, like, at any point in all of this, Lucas could have handed it off to Criterion or someone mm -hmm. and said... Here's where the negatives are. Do your thing. I'll take 50%. You know, I don't know. Something like that. Like, this could be done. 
and there are huge commercial incentives to do it because unlike most major film restoration projects, you are guaranteed to make your money back. Yeah, people care a lot more about Star Wars than almost any other movie. Yes, <laughs> so, yeah, it's not like a weird, like obscure, fucking like yeah. you know, Indian film from 1932. This is <laughs> this is not a movie that will only be shown in film schools if you restore it. Exactly, this is a movie people will buy and are hungry to buy. And it, you know, I also think that Lucas's, you know, obstinate stance over the years of never releasing those original versions, um, just. Did did things to just sour the conversation around this movie, and that is by no means all his fault. I think fans have been pissy about it for way too long, and you know, at the end of the day, thank God there are the fan restorations you can go get. Yeah. But again, um, you know, there was a period after those Blu-rays came out in 2011 where I just didn't want to watch Star Wars because it was just too much fucking work to get a version that was worth watching, and you know, that shouldn't be that way. It, yeah. it's, it is weird that all of its contemporaries have pretty much exactly what you would want on Blu-ray in terms of restoration and archival, and fucking Star Wars doesn't have that. It's insane. So that is my two cents on it, and I think that is hopefully a sober take on the special edition controversy. Yeah, no, I, I'm 100% in agreement with you, because it's like we both... Like, like, are sometimes in that situation where we want or need for di- different reasons to have, like, access to specific versions of this thing, right? And for yeah. me, like, it a lot of times comes down to, like, like text stuff, obviously, because I was an English major. That, you know, I'm going to be an English teacher. I, I need to, like, know that stuff. So that's one of the things that, like, Neil Gaiman's Norse Mythology, one of the really nice things I love he put in that book was... Here is a glossary that tells you this is where I took sources for these different stories. And so it's like this story, it's like I pulled this part from the prose edda, this part from the poetic edda. I made this part up. It is like three sentences for all of them. And it's like, and then I have the fucking, you know, Sigurd and Gudrun. It's like half the book is supplemental material that is either by Christopher Tolkien, the editor that has compiled all this stuff, or existing material by J.R.R. Tolkien, you know? Like if you buy a copy of fucking, like, I don't know, of Hamlet, you have access to, I guarantee you, in whatever fucking, even if it's the shittiest version of Hamlet, you are there somewhere in that book you just bought that tells you, this is, we pulled this stuff from the folio, we pulled this stuff from, like, Quarto 2, we pulled, like, this, and this, like, this is, like, we decided we're going to give this line to this character because every Shakespeare play, there are a hundred different versions of just, like, okay, like, we'll... Take this line, do this. We'll add this punctuation. We'll add this stage direction because Shakespeare had almost no stage direction. Almost any stage direction you see is something that was added by some editor at some point along the way. And almost every single version of those texts you have access, you give access to, will tell you all that shit. And it is important. It is not important to the majority of consumers, but it is important to some of those consumers, and it is important to the most avid. And in some ways, like the most important consumers of that material that are going to take that material and do something and transform it and push it forward, push the conversation on it forward and advance the discussion and, and the cultural discourse on this thing. It is really vital, whether it's Dale Gaiman's Norse mythologies, whether or not it's this weird, obscure thing like J.R.R. Tolkien's Sigurd and Gudrun, or it's, you know, the five billionth, like, Penguin's version of of Hamlet or whatever it is, it is important that all that stuff is there all the time. It is super fucking important if it's Star Wars because Star Wars doesn't have 
500 versions of the way that Hamlet has it. It has, like, three, and one of them, the original one, is not available in any way. Like, you can get a fucking, you can get scans online, like, like fucking more data than you could, like, possibly imagine one JPEG could have of, like, the first folio edition of Hamlet, the original printed version. You can just get that. It's like, it's, that's not walled off to you by anybody. Yeah. It, it's, it's, it is very frustrating that something like Star Wars, particularly now that, like, it's been so much time has this sense of like the original sort of like most academically pristine necessary version of it is walled off to people that they have to go out to like weird measures outside of like normal capacity to be like okay i have to find this weird fucking despecialized edition that was compiled by a fan online and all that shit and look i applaud the fan efforts yeah. i have for years that despecialized edition is amazing particularly its audio options are definitive i think in terms of what you have for the movie um it is you know, close to what you would want from a professional restoration, except you know he, this you know he couldn't go back to like the negative and uh-huh. restore from that and and really get it looking like it needs to. Um, there is also a version online that is just a scanned thirty-five millimeter print of the movie that you can find. I would recommend that. It it looks more aged than other versions, but it is literally just the movie as people saw it in theaters in the summer of seventy-seven. That is an amazing you know thing. But fans shouldn't have to do that. You uh-huh. know? Yeah. This is not easy work, but it is also not undoable work. You know, There are people on this planet who have done this for a living their whole lives. You could call up today and say, we want to restore all the Star Wars movies. Would you like to come do that? And a lot of them would probably do it for free. And, I mean, you shouldn't pay them, but you yeah. could do that. And you could say, here are the materials. Here's what we have. Give them access to the vaults. And in less than two years, I bet you could have a Blu-ray edition of 4, 5, and 6 where each movie has a selectable option from the menu. Do you want to watch 77, 97, 04, or 011? Which uh-huh. version? Like every other, you know, release of a classic movie that yeah. has multiple versions. You could do it. And that's what annoys me. But no matter what version you're watching, the point is, to bring it back here, Star Wars is a great movie. Yep. It's a movie that holds up. It's always been one of my favorites. I love this movie to death. Here's one question, though, Sean. Okay. Because kind of bring it back to where you started with this. If, like, this movie does kind of feel like it's on an island from the rest of yes. the series. Is there going to come a point, and maybe it's already come. I haven't really heard of this. But where if you're introduced to Star Wars through, like, all the other avenues where this movie won't work for future generations. Because it is so sort of its own original old thing. Or do you think it's just kind of timeless if you see it as a kid? I think if you see it as a kid, it's timeless for sure. Yeah. yeah. Like, I think I can definitely see if you come to it for the first time being older, I can see you not liking this movie. Like, yeah. I know that's like, I know from experience. Like, I've talked to people that they've had that experience of like, no, I never watched it when I was a kid. I watched like the prequels when they were in the movie theaters. And then when I was like 18, I saw Star Wars for the first time and didn't really care that much about it. And it's like, I understand that. You know, it's, yeah. an, it's like, as galling as it is to some, like, as galling to us, I can't imagine how galling it would be to my parents to find out, like, people who are like, ah, Star Wars is an old movie. It's like, it's not, it's fucking 1970. That's not old. Like, yeah, it, but no. But it's, and then it's, at some point you have to be like, okay, it's 2018. Sure, it's an old fucking movie. Yeah. It's 41 years old. Yeah, now. it's an old movie. You know, it's like, when I think of an old movie, it's like Frankenstein. That's an old fucking movie. Like, King Kong is an old movie. Any movie that's in black and white is automatically an old movie, even though there are obviously modern movies that are made in black and white. But that's just the way that my brain works. But yeah, but it's, yeah, so Star Wars, I can understand, you know, it, it having that feel to you. But I think, generally speaking, 
I think it's a movie that that if I think if you're a kid and you see it, it captures imagination immediately. I don't see how it could possibly not because it was you know obviously I was born in 1992. Like yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. that's a long time after. I loved this movie as a kid, and yeah. I remember like noticing that it is different than some of the other Star Wars movies. You know, oh sure, it's, yeah. it's it's both slower and faster depending on which part you're talking about, and then it has this kind of weird opening with three C three PO and R two D two and everything. But I just this is one that has kind of always been a reliable rock for me where. I've kind of gone in different directions on some of the other Star Wars movies over the years. Like, for instance, Empire Strikes Back. I've never gone into the direction of I don't like this movie, but how much I like it relative to maybe the first one. Like, oh no, this is clearly the greatest, or I like it, but I still prefer the first. Like, that's kind of wax and wane for me. I'm curious to see where I come down on it this time. Yeah. But with this one, I have always just as a rock, you turn on Star Wars, I will watch it, I will love it, I will enjoy it. It is, it is as good as this kind of thing gets. Yeah. It's also worth saying, very, very different movie than the prequels. It is something I know. Oh, like, yeah. This movie moves on just basic like kineticism and like character work so much more than the prequels do. Like, I think the prequels are much meatier movies. They are more intellectual oh, yeah. movies. They are in some ways more critically interesting to dissect. Like I think our conversations we had more to go on. But at the end of the day, I also probably would call Star Wars A New Hope a better movie probably than any of those three sure. by a lot of different metrics. Uh, and it's also just it's a symbol of like, you know, you can sort of be all surface. And if your surface is good enough, that's all you need. And I think Star Wars is mostly surface for this first one. But uh, it soars. That surface is so rich. Yeah. I mean, obviously we did. And I don't want to go into a lot of discussion on this because it's tired and done. and We don't need to do it. But like there's obviously there's a Joseph Campbell... Monomyth, myth, fucking hero, yeah. a thousand faces, all that hero's journey stuff. That that like if you if you want to find out about that, there are a million sources. We don't, we oh, don't there's a lot that. of film theory and dissection, and we could go into all the Kurosawa influences yeah. and things like that. You could also talk about the many race discussions that have happened with this film. In that, I think a lot of people would view it as problematic that the only black actor in this movie is James Earl Jones playing the villain, and he is disembodied. And he is literally yeah. black. And like or the like coding. the way that people talk about Jawas and sand people is yeah. very like, oh, yeah. hey, I see you. There is, <laughs> like, there, is, there is very heavy racial coding in this movie. Um, and Star Wars has kind of had a, a rocky relationship with that over the years that they are trying to make some improvements on yeah. in the sequels, which is great. But yeah, um, I guess that's just not... Again, there are some things that have been very well trod, and I don't know if we need to talk about them more than just kind of our personal reactions, because that's the fun thing we're doing. Yeah, here. but yeah, obviously, like going to the the a little bit of the Campbell stuff. Like it, this movie obviously has these sort of like mythological trappings to it, and like very intentionally of, of doing the call to to action and refusal of the call, and blah, blah blah, like meet the mentor, all that kind of stuff. But it is it, it one of the things that really impresses me about this movie. In regards to that stuff, is I think that stuff is actually really fucking hard to do in movies. Well, yes, um, because it's a very long structure. It's a structure for like like it's a structure that, for instance, the Odyssey follows. It, it like it subverts in places, but like the Odyssey is a long ass poem. Like that's a long like that's a, we're going to read this for a month, right? Yeah. Like this is going to be like you watch Star Wars in class one day if you have like this extra long class, and then you maybe talk about it for two days at most, if yeah. not one day. The Odyssey would be unadaptable as a two-hour movie. Yes. The Odyssey is a unit of study 
I know from experience now of, of high school, like, this is something you sit down and this is like, we're covering this for a fucking month. We're doing the Odyssey. Like, it's like, like Star Wars is like one movie you watch in a unit. The Odyssey is a whole unit. And it's like, so that hero's journey stuff is typically built out of epic poetry. And it's sort of like the, the root of where it comes from. It's most fleshed out form. And it's something about the economy of Star Wars as a film that is able to communicate the major beats of that with a like pretty rich cast of characters that all have all like the major characters that need a character arc have a clear character arc for particularly most strikingly Luke and Han have like these really strong character arcs that, that intersect in like kind of climax at the same moment in the final battle. Like all that stuff is so impressive from just a structural storytelling point of view. And and it has that sort of three-act structure. Although one thing that's interesting about it to me is that, like, it doesn't feel like it's... It feels like it's like a prologue in three acts. You know, because we didn't talk that much about the way that Luke is just introduced, like, 17 minutes into this movie. Yes. Which is something that I decided to, like, pay attention to more explicitly this time through because it's something I always know... But, like, you just kind of lose that fact when you're watching the movie that it's like, it's, it's like 15, 16 minutes, and now you're first getting introduced to this character. And there's something about the, the going back to the economy of it, of the way that Luke is introduced, of you're just like, he's just standing there next to Uncle Owen before he and Brew have been, like, very brutally turned into smoking corpses. What happens? That scene always shocks me of, like, fuck, they died. Like, they're really dead. But well before they're murdered, he's just standing next to this this scruffy old man, and and it's just at first he seems like he's this unassuming kid, and then uh, Aunt Beru off screen calls Luke, Luke, and Luke runs, and like the camera follows him and like pans off to the right, and and he gets this frame to himself for about thirty seconds, and like and then he he stands over that that ridge, and the camera looks down at him, and he has this very kind of like it's not like superhero because he hasn't done anything yet. But it's this angle that very much privileges him as this primary figure. And from that moment, you know that he's the protagonist. Like, it's just communicated visually. He has been given this space. He's been given this focus. And he's been given this lens that tells you this is the protagonist of the story from now on. Like, R2-D2 and C-3PO were these fun little characters that you kind of followed along with. That that you didn't really spend much alone time with. And Luke is immediately given that privilege of being the protagonist. I find it really fascinating how elegantly they just slot him in there. Where most movies, you have maybe like a three-minute sort of prologue bit that sets up some like villain or something, and then you're immediately cut to, "Hi, I'm the protagonist, and here's what my motivation, and here's the beginning of my character arc." There is no screenwriting teacher on planet Earth who would tell you introduce your protagonist 17 minutes into the movie. No, it's it's insanity, and that's why it feels like it's like there's this weird prologue, and then there's Act One, which is Luke on Tatooine. There's Act 2, which is the Death Star, or them in the Death Star, and there's Act 3, which is them attacking the Death Star, right? <clears throat> yes. And, and it's like, that's a really And the beats structure. and breaks are pretty clear. Like, yeah. Obi-Wan dying signifies the end of the second act, starting yeah. the third. And, you know, Luke, um, them leaving Tatooine signifies, I would say, the start of the second act. Yes, absolutely. They, they take off. Um, but yeah, I, but within that, though, when you're watching it, it just plays. Like, every time I watch it, I expect to find a problem with that that I can point to and be like, aha, this is where I'm breaking through the nostalgia. But I don't... I honestly oh, yeah. have never thought that. Yeah. I think the smoothness with which those 17 minutes move and transition us into Luke, you notice it academically. You do not notice it as like, this is jarring to me as a viewer. Why are we watching these fucking robots? Yeah, like I have to like think about it to approach it intellectually. And, and again, sure. it's one of those things, though, where I think if you didn't have John Williams, I do think you would notice it. Oh, because yeah. I think what he does to carry you through all of that 
to Tatooine, you know, from the the big ship at the beginning to Darth Vader's entrance to them flying to Tatooine to them traveling through the desert to them meeting the Jawas and then to Luke, he's helping make that all consistent and and the the music just kind of it's like the river that you float down while you're watching the, all this go by. Yeah. So yeah. Um, but no, I mean, I, I agree with that because I think this is also a tight two hours. Yes. This is, in its theatrical cut, I think it's 120 minutes, like, to the dot. And it gets in, it gets out, it does not waste a fucking second. And it's completely teachable in all those Heroes Journey ways. It hits all those beats. You can teach so much theory off the back of this movie. Not just about that, but all sorts of different kinds of film theory and, you know, it does this all with just such precision and economy. It's one of the reasons, like, I do genuinely go back between is this or The Empire Strikes Back the better movie. And The Empire Strikes Back is, I mean, think almost certainly the more dramatically satisfying movie and surprising yeah. movie. But I also think if you're just talking about just filmmaking, film craft, storytelling craft, it's, an, it's more of a neck and neck thing than I think people give it credit for. I think this first movie is is. I don't want to say underrated, because that's a stupid thing to say about this movie. <laughs> yeah, about the most discussed movie ever. <laughs> but can I say taken for granted in some of its qualities? Of yes, how well yeah. it does something? Particularly, I would say, in like the mainstream discourse. Yeah. Like, I think there's people assume that it's like more simple than it is, I guess. there's Look, there's a reason why a Star Wars, this movie, is able to kick off what it kicked off in the culture and in film history. And a lesser movie would not be able to do that. Yeah. Period. You know, same with Jaws. In terms of those are the two movies that really help to shift Hollywood into, you know, this sort of blockbuster set piece, you know, tentpole thing. And obviously we can debate whether or not that's been a good thing for Hollywood overall. Um, but it's a transformation that is very real. And I don't think it's a transformation that happens if those movies are vapid and devoid of technique. No, because it's the thing of like, if you want to like do the mythology stuff, like what it almost feels like to me is... It was finally like the most sort of like prime storytelling mode that like has is goes back to like basically every single culture in some form. Like I, I have a lot of problems with Campbell's monomyth stuff, but like there there are patterns and things you can recognize as like very essential to storytelling that is manifested in basically every single culture I know of or have experience with that goes back thousands and thousands of years. And but it, it used to be oral storytelling was the thing for almost ever, and then. Writing took over it, and then, you know, in, in the 20th century, over the course of the 20th century, film became, like, the prime storytelling medium of choice for, certainly for American culture, and, and I would say for most cultures by, 19, by the 1970s, that then Star Wars hits it. Star Wars finds a way, like, cracks that of, like, we can do the thing. We can do the mythology thing. And that will, and we can do it in this mode that is going to hit the population in a way that if you write another book that does it is never going to happen. And it like blew everything up. And so like people go and see the movie fucking like a dozen times when it's in theaters because it's like you have access to this other world that mythologizes things and gives you this like sort of narrative mythological experience that I think humans very naturally crave. But film was never really 100% set up to perform. And Star Wars cracked that. Star Wars is evergreen because it has something to offer everyone yeah. in, its, in, its, in its own way. Um, at least in, in our particular Western society. Like, there are actually really interesting things to go into about, like, Star Wars doesn't play in foreign markets as well as a lot of other modern blockbusters. Like, China has zero interest in Star Wars. Mm -hmm. And I think there are 
that's one of the ways you can maybe actually bring in some practical application of why the mono myth is not mono in, in a lot it's of ways, right? Yeah. But like, at least for um, certainly American, you know, uh, and European, perhaps you know, North American, European uh, countries, it's it's just one of those things that I think is. 40 years in, at least so far, evergreen. I don't think, you know, I like my Fast and Furious movies. I don't think in 40 years, no. the Fast and the Furious, the Dawn Awakens, is going to be making $2 billion at the box office. No, I, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. I mean, maybe they'll they'll create the whole, like, Fast and Furious expanded universe with a whole line of novels and video games that expand. I just can't wait until the next Fast and Furious when... I was going to make a joke about Thanos and the end of Infinity War, and I realized that could be a spoiler. We're not talking about Infinity War. We're talking about we're, Star Wars. We're about talking about Star Wars. It's, it's the Fast and Furious where someone makes a car that is gi-fucking-gantic, and, and they're, like, trying to, like, get, like, they're driving to San Francisco or something, and it's like, like, oh, man, it's like, look at that building. If that's no building, that's a truck. It's like, there's no truck that's, oh, my God. All right. We've kind of gone off the rails. Star Wars is good. And in a couple of weeks, we're going to do The Empire Strikes Back. And I'm really excited to do that one, Sean. I'm, yeah, I, that I, that's, has always been my favorite one. I assume it will probably continue to be my favorite one. I'm just one. excited when I get the chance to watch The Empire Strikes Back. And, you know, we haven't actually caught on this podcast and done an in-depth discussion on that movie. Yeah. And that feels overdue. I, I have a lot of thoughts about Empire Strikes Back, about structure, about storytelling, about sequels, about... There's a lot... There's That is such an instructive fucking story in so many ways. Um, but, but before we do that, before I have to finish up this New Hope discussion with one observation... To, you know, we finished episode three with talking about film wipes and wipe transitions... Star Wars Episode Four has the single best wipe cut of any movie ever made, which is when Luke and Obi-Wan and, and C-3PO, right after Luke has been attacked by the, by the Sand people, and then Obi-Wan, or, uh, or C-3PO's arm has been ripped off, and they go, and they both like go to grab him, and it's like, come on, C-3PO, we can do this, and they go to pull him, and when they pull him up, the frame wipes up with him, and that is how they fucking cut. It is the, I assume they did it because that's where the shot ended, and it like just looked really awkward because they they didn't actually pull him up, so they make it look like they pull him up with the entire frame, and it is the greatest moment in the entire movie. And in, I'm not being sarcastic. 